session y'all yes it is people may be wondering what the fuck was that welcome to satanic study hall yeah satanic study hall is back and we're here for a musical journey a musical journey not a personal journey a musical journey yes so welcome everybody it is good to be back on the microphone after a little bit of a break away holy shit you know, after you talk into a microphone amongst a team of awesome people we have working with us and on the podcast and on the Patreon and on the presentations, you just get so sick and tired <laughs> of fucking talking. Oh, you do most of the talking. I just sit here and, and look shit. around the classroom most of the time. Yeah. I nobody mean, else is here, so now I have to talk. Fuck everybody else. That's and- right. It's, uh, I mean, it's just the Bill and Johnny show for the music yeah. first installment of the musical journey. And I like that. Yeah. Uh, I like that. This this takes it back to, you know, it gives a little bit of the uh, OG Satanic Study Hall vibe. Sure does. Yes, it does. Uh, so, yeah. So, a musical journey. So, this episode and our episode with Stu Han are basically going to be our last little bit of interviews for a while. Uh, we are going to dive back into just being... A bunch of fucking assholes and degenerates <laughs> that learn and talk about Satanism we'll for a while. Ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we're still going to do the interview thing, you know, over time. And <clears throat> it'll make it more exclusive and special. And, you know, we'll do what we always do. And we'll put everything we got into making it as fucking special as we can. Anyways, welcome back to class. My name is Bill. I am a member of the Satanic Temple and also a member of Love City Satanists here out of Philadelphia. And today I am joined by... I am... I am Johnny, the valedictorian, and I am strongly aligned with the Sativa Temple and a member of the Satanic Temple and Love City Satanists as well. Um, and again, we're here to talk about music and we're not here to uh, run our mouths and um, ramble. So you've probably got, you know, our voices minus our featured guests who we'll talk about in a second. Um, for just a few more minutes, we're just going to kind of, you know, go over the basics, do some uh, do some business and kind of introduce um, our topic and the artist that Johnny is featuring for the first installment of A Musical Journey. What is Satanic Study Hall? Satanic Study Hall is a podcast. It is uh, available at satanicstudyhall.com. You can find us pretty much on any podcast platform. We like to talk about Satanism 
and a lot of other stuff. Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the word is in our name. Uh, We are branded (laughs) as such, but uh, we, you know, we're new. We've been around since July. We're having fun. Glad we're taking a break. This has been a ridiculous journey. And some people, you know, since virtual headquarters and just meeting all the cool new individuals that are joining our goat farm online community, they're like, you know, why do you do this? Like, what's, what's, you know, what's in it for you? It's a really good fucking question. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because, you know, being, being into it since July, it's, it's definitely a time investment and it's fucking emotionally draining. Um, Especially when you got a whole bunch of personal shit going on on top of it. Oh, and, and it's, I mean that too. And we've all had our share, but then, I mean, you know, a, a friend said it best, like there's drama day-to-day drama drama with your friends your family and then there's fucking satanic drama (laughs) yeah and that shit is amplified and turned up to max volume uh we're not this we're not talking about that but the fuck was i going with that it's just you know it's it's physically draining oh yeah it's emotionally draining you know we try to we try to keep this as you know as fun and as and as entertaining and as informative as we can for you guys. Well, you see, I, I, I hit the fucking vape pen before we started recording. And Johnny's right. But um, I guess the point of what I was saying is why do we do this? That was a question that I keep getting asked. And basically, it's the why lies behind, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and pulling up Discord and reading a message from, you know, someone in the community saying, thank you for doing this. I listened to this and I listened to that and I resonated with this and I really connected with this person. And fuck, like I'm stuck way out here, wherever way out here is, don't really have camaraderie, um, a sense of community. And I feel like, you know, I belong somewhere. And yeah. that, that that's why we fucking do it. Yeah, that's I mean, I was just having this conversation with someone else in the um, in the community as well. And that's that's why. And I'm not trying to be all warm and fuzzy. You're all look at us. We're, you know, uh, all, you know, altruistic or whatever. Like, yes, I mean, eventually I would love to see this podcast become a business endeavor and be fruitful. It's got a shit ton of potential. Um, but at its core, it's just a bunch of people um, who recently met each other and who have, are all still kind of, you know, in the pool. We all dove in together yep. um, and we're figuring it out as we go. We so- lost some people along the way, but we gained more. And it is. And we're all again, when like, you know, just like it's in it's in the topic of this episode, uh, the word journey. We are all on our own journey. Oh, fuck, dude. And, we, you know, we're going to be side by side, you know, when we relate and we're going to go off on our own path when we don't. Um, but and that's that's OK. <laughs> yeah. And but nonetheless, the journey we're on today is about amazing music driven artists and uh local artists local artists and that's a great place for us to start um and we hope they continue to do it from a local standpoint uh you know unless um pearl jam wants to <laughs> come on the show i would, I would love to, to interview you, know, you want to interview eddie better i would love to <laughs> just ask him questions and mumble what is your band suck? all right, all right eddie, hey, here's the biggest question <laughs> He so, probably know what you were saying. Too. It's like an unspoken <laughs> language. Uh, what did you just call me? Fuck Pearl Jam. Uh, you know who else? Who else would I really want to fucking interview? Ghost. That's a musician. No, I. I don't know enough about Ghost Papa, to want to sit down. Papa Shango. Oh, I want to sit down and interview Papa Shango. He's the Godfather, man. Holy shit! He's out in Vegas. You know, he really is. He yeah, owns he is. strip clubs and stuff. Yes, sir. He's a. He's a. He's a good dude. Um, I think. 
Um, always liked him in WWE. Me or was too. it WWF at the time? He was yeah. in during the transition too, maybe. It was yeah. the Attitude Era. Yeah, the Godfather, the Godfather is timeless. Pimping ain't easy. It's not. There we um, go. There's your wrestling. <laughs> There's your wrestling <laughs> reference. Yes. Uh, so back to back to music. Um, so I guess before we introduce our topic um, and kind of just dive in because the interview that we're going to have is going to blow you know your fucking mind this is it's it's pretty in-depth and really paints a picture of a musician um in the path they took to get where they are today but one thing i've seen in the news that's been coming up from a music perspective is this whole thing with behemoth um and behemoths and nergal been convicted of fucking offending religious feelings jeez yeah and this has been ongoing too i believe with this band uh there's an article on loudwire.com and uh, I'm just going to read some excerpts here. So um, to quote, Behemoth Negral has been convicted of offending religious feelings after posting a photo of himself standing on an image of the Virgin Mary. The musician has been fined PLN 15,000. Sorry for butchering that, but that's roughly $4,000 and ordered to pay court costs of an additional 3,500 PLN. In the past, Nergal won a case brought against him by the Polish government for ripping up a Bible on stage and calling the holy text a book of lies. Behemoth were also targeted after releasing a controversial t-shirt design which resembled the Polish national emblem. Like, what the fuck? It's 2021 and people are still getting convicted of blasphemy and blasphemous activity. I know Lucian... um, I don't know the name of the, I'm not sure what medium they did it on, but he just did a podcast with uh, Nergal, I believe, and the band. Really? Um, just at some, over the last couple of days to bring awareness to what's going on. Wow. And to continue reading the article, uh, quote, as for the decision made against Nergal for offending religious feelings, the behemoth frontman plans to oppose the ruling, according to Anti-Radio. The judgment was handed down to Nergal as a prescriptive sentence, which means the court issued the writ without a hearing. According to Nergal's attorney, Jacek Patulski, the musician's objective... <laughs> According to Nergal's attorney, Jacek Patulski, the musician's objection against the judgment cancels the decision and the case goes to procedure. The verdict against Nergal was charged via Twitter or was shared via Twitter by Polish attorney and president of the board of Ordo Loris Institute for Legal Culture, which is described as an ultra-conservative extreme anti-choice group by OpenDemocracy.net. Like, what the fuck? It's ridiculous. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, you some podcasts you listen to and you go over this and people just go crazy and provide. Like, I'm I'm rather reserved when it comes to, you know, too much loud commentary unless I'm pretty passionate about it. But I'm fucking passionate about this. Like, this is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Um, it is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and another thing I wanted to share that I found um, while kind of just, you know, reading about this, because it's been, you know, a topic of interest for a while, is on the 24th, uh, Loudwire, the same website that we just quoted for the article we're referencing, um, is saying that Nergal has launched a crowdfunding campaign to assist Polish artists, including himself, who have been charged with blasphemy in their home country. He should. The Ordo Blasphema Fund will aid with defense fees and court costs for those who have offended religious feelings as outlined in paragraph 196 of the Polish criminal code. Now I want to make sure everybody knows about this because this is fucking important. Uh, and, and again, this is, you know, we, we we're in a world you hear it a lot in this community, donate, 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 donate. Yes. There's a lot of need and a lot of uh, causes out there, but this one should affect us all. 
Um, and I'm not saying we all should donate. That's You make that decision on a personal level, but just at a consideration level alone. Now, just to read straight off the GoFundMe page for uh, Nergal's Ordo Blasphema Fund, um, it says, quote, My name is Nergal, and I am an artist from Poland. For over a decade, I have been confronted with numerous attempts to permanently destroy my career on the basis that I have harmed religious feelings. It sounds absurd, and I can assure you, it is. Many Polish artists, including myself, have been dragged into courtrooms at our own significant costs to defend ourselves against nonsensical blasphemy laws made by tenuous politicians. Their intent is to censor anyone who does not conform to the archaic religious laws of our country. Now the time has come for Polish artists to fight back. Join us in the Ordo Blasphema. Bl blasphemia. Your donation will help fund a sustainable legal challenge to squash the existing and incoming bogus prosecutions. Help us reach the target so we can distribute to other artists facing their own legal challenges. If you weren't able to donate, thank you for your support regardless. Please keep checking back in and sharing updates. So again, that is, um, if you want to search that on GoFundMe, just search Ordo, O-R-D-O, Blasphemia, B-L-A-S-F-E-M-I-A. That's the Ordo Blasphemia Fund. What the fuck, Johnny? I don't know, man. Like, I guess there's no freedom of speech anymore well, when it comes to Satanism. There's no I mean, freedom of expression when it comes to Satanism. I mean, Poland is is fucking crazy. I mean, yeah, yeah they are. You know, it gets to a point where you got to be super thankful for the internet sometimes, and this is one of those occasions because yeah. without the spotlight and the world spotlight and a couple of tweets and shares and things going viral, it's just I don't know. It's out of control. It is out of control. It's totally out of control. And that's one of the things that really pisses me off about this whole situation. It's, you know, if, if, if it was a Christian, like a TV evangelist or something standing on a picture of Satan, like nobody would care. They'd praise him probably if he was doing that. And this is all being done by the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, And then if, you know, we we uh, picketed or something like that or had a protest or something, we'd be we'd be crucified for it. No yeah. pun intended. It's nuts, too. And again, this is happening because it's OK there. Yeah. I mean, at its core, it's being done by the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, they're the largest fucking organization in Poland. Absolutely. I mean, they influence every fucking thing in, in Poland. I mean, as you can see. What you can hear, what you can see, and what you can say. Um, it's it's fucking nuts. Um, but I'm looking up on this article, um, end blasphemy laws. It's end blasphemy laws.org. Um, it's saying the Polish constitution guarantees freedom of expression, but in recent years, several individuals, in particular artists and musicians, have found themselves subject to charges of blasphemy brought under Article 196 of the Penal Code which allows Catholic clergy and activists to exert their fucking influence mm -hmm. in the public sphere. So you're free, but you're fucking not because no, no. God doesn't approve. Right. That's a whole nother episode, my yes. friend. Yes, it is. That is some bullshit. It is. Fuck Poland. Um, I feel horrible for the people that are under that umbrella of that bullshit. Um, and I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to learn more. And I'm broke as shit, but there's still ways to find out to help. Yes. Um, but anyways, um, not to push it on a sour note, but I mean, music and art in general um, has always <laughs> disturbed <laughs> people of the, what do I say? The throne, yeah. the crown, yep. the crown. Is it? No, the crown is royalty. People of the throne. 
Maybe. Or people of the cloth. People oh, of the there cloth. You go. Ah, there you go. You I knew it. it I knew it. I definitely nice. figured it out. But, you know, it's always offended, you know, people of the cloth. Because, you know, it goes against the grain. It's pushing back on their fucking, you know, their, what, what they're trying to spit out of the Bible. Fuck all that and fight the good fight. We're actually, you know, we're making a point. I'm going to make a point right now. That's all. We're, we're doing a, an entire episode on this topic alone. Um, but I'm glad we kind of acknowledged it and put it out there. So everybody, just like normal, when you hear something on study hall, just like we do, let's do some more research and we'll revisit. Absolutely. So, Johnny, I think it's time to finally introduce um, what the fuck we're going into. I just want to say, if you've never heard of Behemoth, check them out. They're an extreme metal band. Their release, The Satanist, is probably one of the best extreme metal albums out there. Definitely check them out if you're into that kind of music. But, you know, if you don't like extreme metal, then they're probably not for you. I think I might have heard them once. And this is what I heard. Okay, I think good. that's one. I think that that's was the behemoth. first song off the album. Yeah, that was Behemoth. All right, good. Just want to make sure. I apologize to anybody. I just fucking good shit though. Blew their speakers or popped your eardrums, but that wasn't necessary. <laughs> anyway, yes, the Satanist. Check it out, Johnny. It's uh, it's time. Take us on a fucking journey. Uh, this is something that I've been looking forward to for a while now. The interview was done by me. It's pretty long, as Bill said. Uh, it's very important to me because this band is very important to me. I've been a fan of this band for over 20 years. I've probably seen them over a dozen times. Uh, they've ruled the Philly Gothic industrial scene for over 20 years. Uh, I have all their albums. Um, I love. Oh, uh, Blyle said he does too. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, Blyle. I think he actually pirated them, but that's okay. It's, you know, it's, it's very humbling. To be able to have somebody that you've looked up to actually come on the podcast and and have an interview. I, I don't know any other words to use other than humbling. Fucking awesome. That's what yeah, I would it, say. It, it is it, fucking awesome. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. He was really open. He answered the questions. We didn't even have to ask him questions. But I mean, when I did ask him questions, he wasn't. He was. Um, what's the word I'm looking for, Bill? Uh, it was open. open. That's the one word came to mind, like yes. literally open. Um, it was open to anything. Yeah, he, and, he really was. So I think it's time. Uh, is it time to tell him who he is? Yes. This is John Rustin third of the band Carfax Abbey. But first, we're going to take a little break and we're going to give you a little taste of Carfax Abbey before we actually get into the interview. And the song that we're going to play for you is called Ketamine. We'll be right back. Long to be my own reality 
And yes, it's Johnny Voorhees, and I'm here with my man, Bill. Yo! And we are doing a musical journey. And who are we doing a musical journey about? We're doing it about one of my favorite musicians, and he's a local musician from around here, around Philly, Mr. John Russin III. How are you, John? Welcome. I'm doing great, man. How are you guys doing? It's wonderful to finally be able to talk to you after all these years of seeing you play live and, you know, being a fan of Carfax Abbey. It's great to actually finally talk to you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the support and the kind words. Yeah, Johnny's been talking about this for quite some time, and he made sure, <laughs> like, motherfuckers, like... I'm a fanboy. Yeah, I can't help it. This is the day I'm recording this episode, and we're fucking doing <laughs> I don't care if you're there. I'll do it by myself yeah. if we have to. That's what it's I said. done, and you're putting it up. So here we are. That's pretty much how uh, it happened, too. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. So, I mean, I mean, let's just jump right into it. First thing we usually like to ask the person that we're interviewing is, you know, tell us a little bit, you know, about John Rustin III, you know, how you grew up and how you came into playing the guitar. Yeah. Um, you know, kid in the suburbs from Philly, uh, blue collar family. Uh, my pop worked in a steel mill and uh, my mom, uh, you know, pretty much uh, back in the day because I'm, I'm pretty ancient. So I was a kid in the 70s. So, uh, you know, that was uh, mom worked from home. Well, mom was home. And then she ended up uh, going to school and becoming a nurse. 
good childhood, man. You know, I went to, you know, it's funny. I went to Catholic school. So if, uh, you know, I'm probably a result of kids who go to Catholic school, uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of those in our personal um, journeys, but, uh, everything was good, man. You know, like I, I had a pretty, uh, pretty amazing childhood. My folks were great. They're still married and still together. And, uh, awesome. You know, had, had wonderful times and I got two great brothers. Uh, my middle brother, Eric is, uh, you know, he's ex military, ex air force, uh, you know, he, he works, uh, he's a union electrician these days. And, uh, my youngest brother, Steven, another great kid, a guy now, you know, both, uh, great parents, great fathers. And, uh, my youngest brother, uh, he's the one who got me into computers. So I pretty much owe my career to, to him in a, in a large way. Uh, I got to ask, what was your but, first computer? Not to interrupt. What was your very first computer? Do you remember? Oh yeah. God. Yeah. It was, uh, I remember I had to wait until I got an income tax check back and, uh, I went to the strip mall because there was a little shop that this Asian fellow ran, uh, because there wasn't uh comp USAs or anything like that around yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought a 486 DX and I thought I was hot shit because, uh, I think it had like four megs of Ram and I had a turbo button that boosted up from 66 megahertz to 80. And, uh, I thought, man, I was just slickered and slickered in grease. And, uh, you know, it had a CD ROM in it with a, I think it was a one speed CD ROM and you the know, 486. I, so that was that 9,600 baud bodems they came out with, or did they jump into 14 forest? No, I, I started with a, it was a 9,600, and, uh, you know, I don't think I did much with the modem back then because, you know, there really wasn't any gaming and AOL wasn't even out yet. Um, I think when I got the first stupid AOL, uh, floppy disk in the mail, (laughs) and, uh, I was like, what the hell is this? And, uh, when I finally got it working, you know, which is as a tech nerd, it's pretty funny. I actually had to call their tech support. So I'm like, how do you get this thing to work? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I finally got the damn thing working and uh, I was hooked on the internet after that. And, uh, I only really got into computers cause I wanted to play doom. I saw the game doom on my brother's computer. And I'm like, I have to have this. Mm-hmm. So I literally spent like probably $2,000 just to play a video game. Um, many of us but, did. Uh, no, I decided yeah, to all that, did, Yes, I had to know. I'm a fucking nerd. It's all usually my yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, I had know? the I had the Radio Shack XYZ dash four dash five. Yeah, <laughs> I mean my mine. I think I had a Packard Bell. I mean I had the uh, the IBM PC XT. I think, but my actual first computer that I can hook up to the internet was the Packard Bell 386 SX. Um, 2400 baud modem, um, you know, you know, five and a quarter inch or five and a half, three and a half, whatever, both of them. Um, I have no idea yeah, what you're talking about. It was, right it was now. crazy. Uh, I miss those days. Things no were so much idea. more simple. Well, the funniest thing is, you know, my father, I love him dearly. And, and he was a great, he is a great, great father. And as we, when we were kids, you know, my father was always never wanted to be a trendsetter, always wanted to do something different. And, uh, he would come home sometimes with, with shit. You're like, well, why, why is he? So well, one day he just comes home. He's got a computer and, and I, I, I'm pretty convinced some sales guy at Sears probably convinced him that this was the wave of the future. And it was an Apple II Mac with everything was separated. You know, the hard drive is separate from the, the huge, Oh, it was a five and a quarter inch floppy to the little floppy disc. And, you know, he, he got this damn thing all hooked up, had the ribbon green bar ribbon printer, you know, yep. and, after that day, there was never another purchase birthday card or birthday banner. Everything was made on the <laughs> printer. So, like in dot yes. matrix printers, yes. yep. 
you know, Print Shop Pro or whatever the hell it was. Print Shop Deluxe. Every, yeah. <laughs> every birthday banner for all of the family was this green bar printout that would be hung up. You know, and the funny thing is it came with some kind of music program. I remember I remember my dad saying, Hey John, you're playing guitar. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, the hell am I gonna I can't I I can't plug into this thing. And uh who would have known all the years later that I would do 90% of all my guitar work on a computer? But back then it was kind of funny because I remember dropping notes on a staff and and writing all kinds of crazy shit and and that you know the bad MIDI would play back and I'm like, this is just ridiculous. I think it uh, largely sat there until my brother Stephen went to school, and then he actually started really using it as a computer. Um, but at that point, then when he went to school, he switched over to, to using, you know, PC-based systems, and uh, you know, Macintosh pretty much went away, except for iPhones and you know, mm-hmm. Apple. Yep. It just became an iPhone for us. But now you were talking about your dad uh, as far as music and everything goes. Now, did your mom or your dad or anybody in your family from a musical perspective, did they have any passion for music in regards to playing anything? Um, and if they did, what instruments? No, I, I largely don't have much of a musical family. Like I, I, my, my grandfather, my mom's father, he, uh, that's the Italian side of the family. And, and my, my grandfather, uh, he was a singer, he used to sing in bar rooms and sang the piano and, and had a pretty damn good voice. I've heard cassettes of him uh, from back in the day, uh, sang a lot of traditional uh, Italian songs, sang a lot in Italian. So I don't really know what he was singing, but it sounded good. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, but he uh, he passed away when I was like four and a half. So I, I don't really have much of a memory of him, just pictures and, and a couple cassette tapes. And then uh, his son, my uncle uh sonny uh he was a really good singer and and actually did it professionally for the last few years of his life before he passed away you know with a it was like a karaoke group that uh he performed a lot of oldies and did some duets but other than other than those two uh nobody else in my family really played an instrument uh my father and mother were both really into music, so I, I always remember music being around the house. Like like my earliest memories as a kid, you know, are, are like Saturday mornings, getting up, completely being jacked, waiting for Creature Double Feature or Doctor Shock to come <laughs> right, on. Right, of course. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I just remember my mom and you know my my family had one of these uh those long big ass uh, you know furniture. Uh, combo stereo so two speakers on the end you flip the top up and you had a, a phonograph a cassette tape i think they had an eight track in it and on your speaking was, i don't i don't think anybody was, in the in the podcast is going to know what that is a phonograph yeah, and a so, cassette tape. Yeah, all, what the fuck are all, they all <laughs> antique audio files eight track what the hell is that antiquated things yeah. that isn't that a train an Amtrak and then a train. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. And, uh, Continue. And that was, uh, I remember AM radio. My mom would every Saturday morning, you know, it would be the, the house cleaning day around, you know, our home that I grew up in. And every Saturday morning, you know, she would either have uh, AM radio playing or they would put, you know, uh, you know, vinyl on. And, uh, you know, my earliest recollections of vinyl you know, or Kenny Rogers in the first edition, uh, and probably the, the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar, because my mom was, was <laughs> wow. uh, really into both of them. That's crazy. And my mom still owns that record. 
<laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar. My mom owns, still owns to this day, Jesus Christ Superstar. Wow. Oh, I just moved yeah. her. She has the record. It's, it's I actually nuts. heard that's a pretty badass soundtrack, yeah, though. It's, it's ridiculous. It's a great soundtrack. Yeah. I heard it was. The original lead on it, Ted Neely, was like, you know, if he'd have come out in the 90s, he could have been singing in a Seattle grunge band. Like, God, it. Wickedly great voice. Me and, mm-hmm. me and Johnny know some people who like Seattle grunge. And <laughs> we sure, we sure do. <laughs> we, we won't uh, go there. But fuck yeah. Pearl Jam. Fuck Pearl Jam. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I I just always remember being around music and always just loving it. You know, and early on, like I didn't have any desire or thoughts about playing. I just liked hearing it as I got to be a little bit older in school, you know, like a lot of kids in the seventies, I discovered kiss and, and the world changed at that point. Because mm-hmm. of, like, these guys are unbelievably the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, all of like, you know, six or seven years old was like, this is the greatest shit I've ever seen. Yep. And uh, at that point I really began pining away and, and thought like, that's a real job. Like you can actually do this really desperately wanted to play pestering the shit out of my parents uh for for many years to get me a guitar um you know and at that point now my musical appreciation went from kiss to uh you know pink floyd and acdc and eventually discovering black sabbath oh yeah a nice progression of course um you know progressively got you know at some point there was there was a phase for like a week or two where i was really into the cars and thought they were the greatest thing in the world i love the cars cars are they wrote some great stuff and uh you know i just liked everything and when I was 12, my mother gave me this, this really shitty acoustic that she had. And, you know, I swear to God, the strings were like, you know, that far. Like you could drive a, a truck or roll a shot glass strings in the fretboard. Sure. <laughs> you know, and it was like, uh, well, you know, if you play on this for, for a couple couple weeks, a couple months, uh, maybe we'll buy an electric. You know, that, that's, that's where I began. So I got that thing and started obsessively playing and, you know, discovered early on that, uh, after playing for about a, a year or two, you know, I finally got a, an electric and, you know, I, I pretty much, I, I think, you know, now grading myself, I, I was really terrible at it and, and, you know, probably had no business really ever becoming a, a guitar player because any of the natural skills that most of the guys who, who end up becoming really good have, you know, a good ear, good day, you know, I'm not a tall guy. I don't have giant hands right. and I had a tin ear. Like I couldn't hear shit. I am trying to learn songs by ear off the radio or, or vinyl were damn near impossible. So um, you did, you went, you went with like the sheet music, like actually reading the music and mastering it that way. I went with uh, yeah. And, and luckily tablature uh, started coming out and guitar for the practice and musician was a magazine that used to, to come out every, every month. And they would post uh, some, some cool songs, you know, from Ozzy or, you know, Ingve was starting to come around then and, and Van Halen and, you know, they would just post a random assortment of tablature songs. And uh, I learned how to read tablature and, you know, started being able to learn songs. The biggest thing that, that probably kicked me in the ass was I didn't realize it at the time because I was never really into sports and didn't consider myself a competitive person. But uh, a couple of friends of mine were, were players and, and they were all way, way better than me. And I remember being over at a buddy's house in, in, in good old Bristol, PA, and, and he was a drummer, but he also played guitar. And, you know, so he picked up this guitar and starts jamming. And the guy just shreds me. He's like kicking my ass. And so I start trying to dick around, show him my little bit. And a local mutual friend just turned to me. I'll never forget. He just he said, 
God, you totally fucking suck. I don't know what at that moment, but you know, it was like a light switch went off right. and, and I thought, you know, I don't have the natural skill that these guys have, but, but God damn it. I'm, I'm going to get good at this one way or another. So at that point, I just started obsessively practicing and, and at that, at that I went from, you know, probably doing, you know, the obligatory hour or two a day to practicing like six, seven hours every day, right. like obsessively playing uh, everything and thought, well, if I don't have the natural ability, there's a technical way that I can get there. I can just become such a great player that learning all this shit will be easy. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have, speaking of practice, now, did you have a favorite song to practice? Yeah, pretty much the Diary of a Madman album, front, nice. front to back. Mm-hmm. Like, even though I couldn't, I probably was playing everything hideously wrong. It was just the attempt at trying to mimic it, you know, trying mm-hmm. to mimic the phrasing that Randy Rhodes was doing, uh, trying to mimic, you know, when he would speed up, I would speed up. When he would slow down, I would slow down. And he was bending, I was practicing bends and trying to develop vibrato. And, you know, and I remember seeing a, a video of uh, Ozzy's Speak of the Devil uh with brad gillis playing guitar and uh i just remember catching one clip where, where gillis was doing this like hammer on pattern and uh i was able to mimic it and then at that point like i just practiced that obsessively so i, I think i developed a lot of my chops that one little riff that, that i got from that to uh really start you know just repetitively going over and over and over again and i noticed after a couple of years you know now i'm in high school and and you know i'm, I'm actually playing pretty good you know, like I'm, right. I'm able with tablature to learn these songs. It's actually helping develop my ear because now I can start hearing when I was playing it wrong. You know, I noticed guys started asking me to, to join their band because, you know, uh, some of the stuff I could play on a technical level is a little bit beyond where a lot of the other guys my age were at the time. You know, at that point I was, you know, doing, you know, most of the tracks off Led Zeppelin 4, pretty mm-hmm. much note for note, can do most of Diary of a Madman, note for note, can do, you know, uh, a pretty considerable amount of Van Halen tunes pretty well. So I was getting there. Hail Satan. Hey, we just wanted to pop back in here real quick. And uh, we hope that you're enjoying this episode. I mean, as I said, it's really special to me. And I hope that it's special to all of you, too. Oh, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, you're fucking special. I'm so special. All, so these, special. all these fucking feeling moments. No, this is <laughs> it's, it's it's awesome. We're definitely doing this again. Yeah. Uh, we're definitely doing this again. Um, but I forgot to mention that he was the guitarist. Hopefully you got that already. (laughs) But before before we dive back in, Johnny, tell me what it was like with you as a musician, as a child. When did music raise its fucking hand and say, hey, like, pay attention to me? I mean, believe it or not, it wasn't it wasn't actually heavy metal that I was into when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up on Frank Sinatra. And Patsy Cline, and um, I'm not even gonna um, I'm not even gonna say the other guy's name because no, it's, it's embarrassing. Pearl Jam? No. Oh, okay. No, the, what, Pearl the, Jam who, wasn't around when I was a kid. What are you gonna say? Like fucking? Billy, not when I was like little. What are you gonna say? Billy Ray Cyrus? No, I was gonna say Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Because that's that's every that's who my mom would listen to, and I mean she listened to like Kenny Rogers and Barry Manilow and just all that shit. That, that's what I grew up with. Like the, you know, you and, like the Copacabana? Yeah. Her name was Lola. Lola. She, she was, was a showgirl. Girl. Exactly. At the Copa. Copacabana. The hottest spot north of Havana. Here at the Copa. 
Copacabana, music and passion. Tell you what, though. always in fashion at the Copacabana. People shit on him, but he can sing. They Barry Manilow can sing love. like a motherfucker. So can Tom Jones. Tom Ooh, Jones. He was another one. Tom and Jones. Tom Jones. But yeah, that, it was. That's what I grew up on. And then probably when I was around twelve or thirteen is probably when I got introduced to rock. When did you first pick up a drumstick, Johnny? When I was sixteen, I actually tried to play guitar, but that shit's too too hard. So when you, that shit, I'd rather just bang on shit. So when you picked up the drumstick, were you like fucking Aladdin picking up the magic lamp? You knew that some shit was about to go down. No, my parents had played that shit when we're not home. Okay. So it was it just an, made a lot of noise. So it was an evolution. Like, did you yeah. used to bang on the fucking tables and oh, shit yeah. as a kid? I still do that. You now. always had a rhythm and a beat, of course, because yeah. you play drums fucking magnificently. Yeah, I still do that now. Is that a word, magnificently? I don't know. You might have made it up. Uh, I think it is. I'll have to look it up. But no, um, no, I was just curious because, you know, we're always, we're uh, as hosts of the podcast, we're mm-hmm. always asking other people questions about themselves. And I know That's true. we talk amongst ourselves and while we're planning episodes and, you know, kicking it and whatever. Shit, but I might have to do my own musical journey. Seriously. I'll ask myself questions. No, nah, and I mean, Johnny, you know, how do you reach yourself as a musician? I stink. Next question. <laughs> so, all right. So real quick, before, before we get back into it, let's talk a little bit more about drums and you. So. You, when did you realize you liked it and you were going to stick with it? When I actually started playing like the straight four beats, you know, like the basic rock beat. When I started to get good is when I probably said, you know what, this is for me. Okay. But it really sucks because I wish I like sang or something. It really sucks bringing all that shit to a show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking singers bring a oh, microphone. I have to bring a microphone. Sometimes or, you don't even have to bring the microphone. Know, you just bring right? yourself. I mean, some, you know, your bass guitar, like your bass guitarist in fucking Siberia. <laughs> it looks it's like just... lugging around a dead body. <laughs> it's <laughs> it ridiculous. Coffin. That thing's bigger than him. It is. It's a seven string bass. Seven string bass. Sounds fantastic, though, when he plays it. Yes, it was. <laughs> I love watching him play too here in the live streams. It's just, and he's so fucking animated. You know, he's like the size of Dennis. <laughs> Seriously, it's like he's carrying <laughs> furniture. His hands are so far apart. It's fucking crazy. Um, but yeah, so no, thank you. I, I was curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners were. Um, but uh, no, but playing the drums is, is it's fun. You know, it's very stress relieving. That's for sure. When you're, you know, pounding on shit. Especially, you know, with the shit I'm going through now, it's very, it's very, you know, therapeutic. Yes, just don't play drums with your fists. No, I don't. Uh, no, on walls. I mean, no. I, I know the other part, but I sometimes I get excited. You were like Bill Goldberg before he went into a match. He'd smash his <laughs> fucking forehead on myself. <laughs> no, he'd punch himself in the head twice, and then he'd smash his fucking forehead against the door. And every time during all of his main event matches, you'd see that some bitch coming out like bleeding from his forehead. Oh, yeah. He concussed yeah. himself like three times. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Then he would breathe in the fumes from the uh from the fireworks <laughs> the fuck is wrong with him uh he's still doing it though he really he is. is um he is speaking of still doing it let's progress forward uh what do we got next i think we're gonna listen to a song yeah we're gonna listen to another song and i believe this is part two of the interview where we were actually talking about uh him going into adulthood i think um we even touch on carfax abbey here Carfax Abbey sounds like so, a yeah, British television show. Let's give you, uh, let's give them another song. Bring it on. All right, so we're gonna play a little song now. It's a little song that's uh, off this album, Second Skin. 
And the song is called Love Hate Kind. Fucking rock out to it. You're listening to Satanic Study Hall FM. Where we don't play Pearl Jam. If I could smell your words, I'd reek of hate just
So at the risk of sounding weird, uh, and it's not just my experience with musicians in regards to like recording this podcast, but I'm not a musician myself, so I don't really offer perspective. But as far as asking people like their exposure to music uh, and like whether or not, you know, what kind of pulled them in uh, or even if it was kind of they were just immersed into it, like or almost forced into it through their parents, uh, there seemed to be a recurring theme like and it's fucked up to think about, but, you know, a lot of the people that I've talked to seem to mention religion or experience at a summer camp or in church or something like that, um, that, that kind of, you know, you know, at first, like it was forced upon them, but it kind of, I don't know, either grew on them or a light bulb went off and kind of opened the door to a lot of different things down the road. So did that kind of happen with you at all? I mean, I know you mentioned the Catholic thing. No, not really. I mean. You know, it's funny because I used uh, being a guitar player to my advantage because I went through Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. So I went through St. Anne's and Bristol Borough all the way to Bishop E in, uh, in Fairless Hills. So I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade. When I got to high school, I was good enough of a player that I could learn uh, the, the church stuff they were playing. Essentially, I got a cheapo acoustic guitar and I used to use that to get out of uh, a lot of classes uh, every morning they would have a, a church process, you know, like a 45 minute mass. You know, I could get out of a lot of classes if I would go strum some of these songs. Fuck yes. <laughs> so I bored myself out as much as possible just to, to be in school as little as possible. Well done, sir. Yes, well done. If I could strum and play some of these tunes, like uh, they were all like the same, like C, A minor, D chords all over and over again. And, uh, you know, the, the lady that ran the, the church group, she she thought I was 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 a, a great, great kid to have because uh, I was so into playing and I just, yeah, so I, it was definitely never forced on me. Uh, I was the aggressor. Like, I'm the one that pestered the hell out of my parents. Like, like my parents are great. They didn't really force anything on us. I think they always liked to see my brothers and I try shit. Like, I, I played baseball and discovered I was terrible. I played football for like a week and discovered I was terrible. Played basketball and found out that I can't dribble, I can't shoot, I'm slower than shit, and I'm too short. So <laughs> yes. I pretty much single-handedly went down every sport and, and found uh, that none of them were appealing to me. Well, musician it is. Hey, marching band's a sport, too. <laughs> Good point. And with that, yeah. I guess we should mention that, you know, oh. Mr. Morningwood decided to join yeah, us. Dennis Morningstar Morning hopped on, I hopped like on our that. little interview here. <laughs> What's up, sloth, you ugly? <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> now, what about that feeling? Like, 
it was obviously a passion and you, you aggressively pursued it. Now, what did it feel like to finally get that fucking guitar in your hand? Like, was it, was it intimidating? Did it, well, you know, was it like fucking real, like Dorothy and those Ruby fucking slippers just fit you perfectly? Um, you kind of explain that. Cause I, it's, it's, it, these stories are kind of interesting when I talk to musicians. Well, when I first really started playing, again, I, I was kind of going by what the music teacher would say to do. And, you know, and I signed up for lessons and, you know, you know, it was, it was just bullshit, you know, really, because you didn't have the tools that you have today. So uh, the local guys I was friends with were, were, you know, they were cool and they were good players, but they were kind of pricks. They wouldn't show you anything. So it was really music, you know, going to these music lessons half hour a week. And, and, you know, it was kind of learning crap, you know, like, uh, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb isn't far away from from the kind of stuff. I think the first song I ever learned how to play was Wipeout, some like 50s, you know, uh, surf. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, my father blew a speaker to so that song as a child. I think it was so, Dick Dale. So that's the first song I ever learned how to play on guitar. And, uh, and I played it pretty obsessively because it was the only thing I could play. And uh, I didn't really feel anything with it. I always kind of felt like I was falling off the ledge of a cliff with it because I just never felt like I was progressing in my skill as, as fast as I wanted to be progressing in, in my head. So it's almost like the physical, technical capability never really caught up to where I wanted to be in my head. Uh, probably not until I was in my later teen years. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, when I played... I played a, a concert at our school with with a you know some jive band that I had that you know I think we were doing like some freaking Night Ranger songs or some shit and it was probably pretty all terrible but we played this show and a lot of kids uh, got excited and and you know started giving us a lot of compliments and at that point it took on a whole different feel and uh, you know and, and that was really kind of around the time frame where I was starting to really just get obsessive about it and 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 most days even now like i got you know i'm pretty much always got a guitar strapped on always have since i was 15 16 you know i I don't watch movies uh, without a guitar in hand i you know i I pretty much uh, when i was in college you know music school uh, i pretty much had a guitar in hand while i would eat i watch movies socialize you're drinking until you got to a point where drinking you had to put the guitar away because you're break it if you kept Sorry. going <laughs> yep but yeah it's a pretty it, big investment just, yeah it just it always felt it it didn't feel it felt terrifying and behind the eight ball until i really felt like i could do stuff with it and then at that point it started to begin to feel more like you know like a creative outlet and and you know it, it probably sounds weird but it just like the feel of the uh, the strings, the the wire, the wood, the, the the smell of it, like everything about it was just like this is it, and, you know. And, and it was it was really uh, it, was, it was a magical time, you know. I mean, really, it was great to to keep discovering new things about it, and it still is. That's why I still play. I mean, I've been playing for close to forty years now, and hmm. you know, wow, it's uh, still as as magical and, and exciting as as ever. I just have way better gear now than I had. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Fucking right. All right. So you mentioned Kiss, you know, when you started playing. Now, you know, were they the ones that did it for you? Like, were they the ones who, you know, you said, that's it. That's what I got to do. You know, and who are some of your other heroes, you know, growing up as far as playing guitar goes? 
Yeah, Kiss, it was definitely, as, as a kid, it was Gene Simmons. You know, I, I didn't think there was anyone on the planet cooler than that guy when, when I started out, you know. Uh, you know, he's up there spitting blood, breathing fire, and just doing all this crazy shit. And and as a lifelong horror fan, uh, I, I can't even tell you ever remembering a period where I wasn't watching horror movies. Like, I, I, I my mother and father never said, you can't watch this. So my earliest memories, you know, are, I can tell you, Saturday mornings would be like Fat Albert would come on. You'd wait for Fat Albert to get over. And then, you know, it would be Dr. Shock. And when mm-hmm. he passed away, it was Creature Double Feature. You know, all kinds of crazy shit. But the Universal Horror Monsters and Godzilla and, you know, when I got older, like seeing The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw, like, none, you know, none of them ever scared me. To me, they were just normal movies. That's what I watched for entertainment. I don't find comedies very funny, so I always was was a horror movie guy. So Gene Simmons, the tie-in with the horror movies, was it. And then from that, as I started discovering more bands, like Angus Young was a huge influence in the beginning, like ACDC when they put Back in Black out. I just thought, holy hell, this is like the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes, the Hell's Bells riff, the beginning. Hell's Bells riff. Great riff. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, they were just so dangerous, like, like, I never got the whole thing with Kiss, like why parents were against him because, you know, Kiss always also had a kind of a cartoony vibe to him. I mean, they were cooler than shit, but, you know, you kind of look at them now, you know, they had a little bit of cartoony to them, but like ACDC was like, holy shit, like, like listen to this guy's voice. And he's like, kind of like, oh my God, this guy's yeah. like, you're like invoking <laughs> fucking Satan. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you could hear the <laughs> screams. Cover, all black with the embossed ACDC logo. And, you know, and it was around that time I was really into Hell's Bells, Dirty Deeds wall. Done Dirt Cheap. I mean, in fucking highway to hell. Highway, it was literally motherfucking hellacious. Yeah. yeah. You know, I thought Angus Young, you know, was at the time, I thought he was probably, you know, the greatest guitar player on the planet because he just, you know, had such great riffs and, and he, he just gave such a show, like like he was possessed up there playing. And, you know, and it really kind of, I'd say I was probably like super into Angus Young and Jimmy Page for many years in the beginning uh, because I thought they were both, you know, phenomenal and still do think they're great players. But, you know, I remember vividly being in a car with my father uh, and him running to an ATM and we had AM radio on in his Volkswagen and uh, I heard uh, eruption and uh, into You Really Got Me and kind of introduced me to Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, their album had already been out. I mean, it was obviously, in, you know, I think they were on maybe Van Halen 2 or Women and Children First at that point. But radio wasn't really playing them too much in, in our area. You know, we were kind of stuck with uh, a lot of Led Zeppelin and a lot of, uh, you know, classic rock. Yep. And when I heard that, I was just like, what the hell is this guy doing? Holy, like, I, I didn't think it was possible to even move your fingers that fast. And it just, you know, you know, really at that point, I, I was almost felt like it was in the same month that I discovered Van Halen and Randy Rhodes. It's, man, that was it. After that, it was obsessively seeking out any any guitar god that i could find uh until ingve came out and then i thought i should probably quit because i <laughs> never played better than that guy but yeah all, all those guys you know the standards like the one thing i was never really into I, I didn't really never had an appreciation for the blues players until i got older like as a younger guy it was all like the flash dudes like i wanted the, the hot dog players the van halens and, and randy Rhodes and even though those guys had those influences, I, I was 
not musically experienced enough to to pick up on on what they were putting into it. I was only really obsessed with the flash side of it. All right. Do God adulthood. Adulthood. <laughs> adulthood um, as a musician. Maturity. So thanks for that, John. And uh, now we're going to go into uh, adulthood. It's time to be an adult. You know, so as John Rustin, the adult, you know, what are some of the issues? You know, what are some of the roadblocks you've hit, you know, when it comes to being a musician? Great question. Uh, I'm sure everyone, uh, anyone who listens to a musician will understand money. Yep. Money, uh, especially early in your career. Um, doesn't matter how good you are you probably can't afford decent gear. And as you get older and you start to get decent gear, you discover like, holy hell, if I had this back then, Jesus, I mean, I could have been so much better. Um, yeah, I agree. So, so the quest for decent gear, um, the quest for knowledge, you know, I mean, back in the day, there was, there was so much like, you gotta learn shit the hard way. Like, I don't know how many amps I blew up. I don't know how many tubes I blew up. I don't know how many pedal boards I wrecked. I don't know how many guitars I wrecked from this, you know, curiosity of, I wonder if I rip this pickup out and try this. And then, and then yeah, you never really had money to, to afford to fix shit the right way. So uh, money was probably the first obstacle. And then, you know, adulthood as a musician, you know, the tough part is just finding other people to, to you know, that you gel with musically. Like there's people you could be great friends with, um, but, you know, you don't click as musicians, you don't click as a band, you know, uh, you don't share the same vision early on, you know, as, as a young person coming into it, you know, and you finally start to hit that adulthood area where you're, you know, 21, you can get into clubs and start playing you know, all the cool rooms that you wish you could play when you were 19 and mm -hmm. 20. It's just learning the business side of it is so bullshit and tough. And it's, uh, you know, like back then you had to drop, cassettes off or or some kind of recorded medium of your band uh, you know to show what you can do uh chances are it was you know probably some prick promoter that you know either didn't like what you were doing or you know they put you on some ridiculous impossible to draw spot like here's your spot at 1 15 a.m on yeah, tuesday right. night Been and there. if you don't draw at least 100 people don't knock on my door again Yep. I, I actually miss those days. I miss those days of uh, demo swapping at the Trocadero at metal shows yeah. and hardcore shows and all that. All the yeah. kids there handing out their tapes and everything. I miss yeah. those days. I do, too. I, I do. And and it's uh, but it was also the tough part. You know, I mean, like getting through that, like just it always felt like, man, there's just no light at the end of this tunnel. It's just, uh, you know, it's just going to be forever of of you know, playing these bullshit spots and like, why am I wasting time? Right. Now, have you ever been rejected from a gig or a band, you know, because of your appearance and background? Yeah. When I, when I, uh, prior to trying to play shows, I, I went to Musicians Institute in Hollywood. So I lived out in California for about two years. And, uh, when I moved out there, I was fresh out of Catholic high school. So I had, uh, didn't have hair like I have today. And, uh, I had a nice short Catholic boy haircut. And uh, when I moved to California, this was 86. Yeah, it was the height of the, uh, the butt rock craze, you know, the poison and yep. shit like that. And of course. Crew. Yep. I, uh, I didn't look at all like those guys and didn't have the money to, to pay to get fake hair. Not that I would have paid to get fake hair anyway. 
I got rejected from every gig because, you know, it was like, you, know, you don't have the look. And it didn't matter that at that point now I was actually, what I would say is pretty confident in saying I was a pretty good player. I could definitely hang with, I'll say this very confidently. Most of the guys that got the gig over me, like I know if it was a, you know, we're going to get up on stage and just see who can outplay one another. I, I think I would, at worst case scenario, I would hang. Right. And in most cases, I think I would probably maybe be a tad bit better. And, uh, but I wouldn't get a shot because I didn't have long hair. Sure. Now, uh, you, you cut out for a second there. Um, my internet sucks. Uh, did you say you went to a musician's institute in uh, Hollywood? Yes, sir. I got accepted there in uh, 2008. I was out there for a little while. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, probably a lot different from when I went. Uh, I know they they moved into the building that they're currently in, in today. Um. I did my last two quarters of school in the new building, my first two quarters in the old facility that was right on Hollywood Boulevard. Okay. What exactly did you uh, study? I did rock guitar, uh, just guitar in general. It would especially, at the time, they had especially for rock guitar playing. I'm like, oh, that's right, cool. right. And uh, I got my cool little diploma. So it's, uh, nice. you know, <laughs> basically solidified that I can be a rock guitar player. Very Fuck nice. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, it's a great school. There it was every Friday night in the cafe. They always had a rock concert. And oh, dude, the school was like that. You know, when, when people talk about reflecting on your youth about shit you miss, like there's not a damn thing I miss about high school. There's nothing I would go back and redo. The only thing I would redo from from earliest memories up into going away to music school would probably go back and relive Halloween because I love that as a holiday. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, but anything about high school just sucked. School sucked. Everybody, but, but music school, freaking brilliant. Like that right. being in that place surrounded by all these like-minded people, like there wasn't any women. So you, your dating life pretty much was non-existent, but uh, <laughs> you know, it was uh, a brilliant place to be just so many great players and just to have that kind of inspiration because every right. time you know, you're walking down the hallways and you know you just hear somebody playing this mad stuff and you're like what the hell is this guy doing and then you look in the door and it's you know some dude from sweden or some some cat from japan just they're just killing it and you're like god damn like i'm never going to be good like, like, <laughs> yes. i thought i was good until i just went down the hallway like shit again. I gotta go and practice another twelve hours. <laughs> now going back to high school. Now that from that new musician um, mentality, uh, you know Johnny talked about you know getting rejected from gigs or, or bands because of appearances and whatnot. But um, now my high school experience, it was it was good to an extent, but it fucking sucked. High school fucking blows. Now yeah. from a musician standpoint, now what do you feel is the biggest hurdle facing younger musicians today? And what advice would you give them to overcome whatever you think that would be? And in today's world, 2021. God, today is is man, that's that's so it's so different and 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 I don't think different for the better. Like on one hand I think it's brilliant that we have, you know, mediums like like the way we're talking now. I think it's brilliant that you can communicate with musicians from from all over the world now uh, with a couple of mouse clicks. Um, I think it's great that musicians can now take full control of their art uh, and put it out on their own and not have to worry about like, 
does this bullshit dude at a big label think I'm good enough? Like, it doesn't matter. Like you can put it out and if people like it, you're, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to get attention, possibly make some money and, and do something cool. Um, the downside is, you know, the art of seeing good live bands, like, like seeing local bands, you know, I, I definitely think we're seeing a shortage of, of good talent coming up. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the, the new music that comes out, you know, uh, everything from, uh, you know, what the DJs are doing, you know, and I don't know any of their names because I just usually go on Spotify and just find a bunch of crap and just let it play. Me too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I'm not, you know, I, I probably have heard it if you want to name someone, but, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of electronica. I listen to a lot of DJ stuff and, and, you know, a huge fan of that downside of it is, you know, it's all created on a computer, which is, is awesome. You know, I love it, but I don't think you're, you're seeing as much with people playing, you know, instruments and then getting that synergy of getting together in a band, because like right now you can sit at home. I can sit at home in my studio and write an entire song. And I don't have to collaborate with anyone. I mean, I could do it all myself with, you know, drums, keys, horns, strings, guitars. You know, if I want to put some shitty singing, I could do it myself, but I prefer <laughs> not to. Um, but, you know, it's like, and I think you're missing out on that, that, that touch. Cause I think what's really made a lot of music so good in the past um, was the collaboration you know, maybe being in a band with somebody who you really can't stand, but, you know, together you can write some, some cool shit. I mean, I think the biggest hurdle for, for kids today is who are they learning from? Like, who are they, where are they going? Like, like live clubs are dying. Yes, uh, you know, are. it's hard to get people out. And then, you know, it's like the news travels so fast that like, you know, if you spend an hour on Twitter, you think you're under siege and the whole world is ending because it's nothing but just doom and gloom and, you know, people getting shot, people being murdered, people being pissed off, people rioting. It's just like, where do you get, like when I was younger, I couldn't wait to get to the city. Uh, You know, if I was a parent and I'm not, but if I was a parent, you know, I don't think I'd want to send my kids into the city to go see a show because not because I know it's dangerous. I mean, I, I don't know. It could be safer than hell. But what you see on the news and, and, and what's presented tells you it's terrifyingly dangerous. And so where do kids go play? Like, like what's the rock club right now that, that a new band would want to play? Like when I was 16 in the suburbs of Philly, like I wanted to play the Galaxy. I wanted to play the Empire. I wanted to play, you know, years later, the Asylum, the Truck, the Balcony, you know, Dobbs or, or Pontiac what do you have now? Like, I don't even know the name of a club in Philly. That's, that's, you know, I know bar 13 and they're in Delaware. Yeah. I know, <laughs> that was the only, that's the only one I'm familiar with. I'm not too far from that one. There's Kung yeah. Fu necktie. I know that one. Yeah. Connie's Rick Rack. Yeah. Uh, yeah Connie, you know, no more. Yep. And, and, and the worst thing is, is this damn pandemic. Like, I mean, how many of them are going to, they're going to hang in there. Like I've got, I've got a handful of friends that, you know, they make their living is, you know, stagehands for touring acts and, 
they're out of work right now. You know, yeah. there's nothing happening. So whatever is going to turn around from this pandemic, however things are going to change, whether people want to go back to seeing live shows. Like I know I really want to go see a live show. Me too. So hopefully other people will feel the same way and maybe appreciate what, you know, has been taken away from us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you take shit for granted when it's always there. No, you sure do. You know, when, you, when you don't have it is when you really want it more. So maybe we'll see a return to, to live music again. You know, I hope. All right. So uh, what are some of your uh, accolades when it comes to being a guitar player? Like, you know, what are you most proud of? Um, Probably that I stuck with it. I'm not proud of it yet because I don't think I've done exactly what I wanted to do with it yet. Like, I don't think I've released the album that uh, I've wanted to do um, yet. I don't think I've recorded you know, the best track that I can do yet. And uh, I don't think I've played the best show that I can play yet. Probably the best thing at this point that I would say that that makes me most proud of being a guitar player and being happy is that when I was a younger player, when I got back from music school, I gave guitar lessons for quite a, quite a number of years. And several of the, the kids that I gave lessons to uh, still play to this day. Several of them I'm actually friends with on, on Facebook. Outstanding. And, uh, you know, they play and not only do they play, but they, they actually became like ridiculously good um, because they, they put the time in. So uh, having a few of them, you know, especially when I see him play, I'm like, Jesus, this kid like kicks my ass now. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you were a huge influence. It's like, I don't know how, but thanks. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have two guitars. I can't play them for shit. I just hung them on the wall. They're just decorative pieces right now. <laughs> I pick up my acoustic every day, but that's about it now. All right. So, I mean, of course, you know, we talked about the accolades and we talked about, you know, what you love about playing guitar. But, you know, has there ever been a time, you know, in your musical history when you just wanted to say, you know, fuck it and stop playing? You know, if if you did, you know, how did you overcome that feeling? You know, what methods did you use to overcome that feeling? You know, truthfully, uh, you know, I don't think... After I got back from music school, uh, you know, shortly after that, I started working at Ibanez Guitars and I met a lot of really cool rock stars when I was working at Ibanez. And I kind of saw on the flip side how hard it is to to be long term successful and make, you know, because like, 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 for example, I went to a NAMM show. The dudes from Winger, you know, Ibanez was an endorser with, with, you know, Red Beach, the guitarist from Winger. And the guy was a great player. And. He didn't have enough money to pay for a hotel room. Because they asked if he can crash on my hotel room. And this was like their freaking videos were all over MTV at the time. Wow. And I'm like, shit, there might not be a way to make money doing this, you know, because you always hear the bands complain about, you know, not making any money. So for me, the desire to become a rock star and become famous and make a lot of money playing guitar kind of went away before I ever even really played in in a band that was even successful. And uh, I really found the guitar to be, you know, uh, something to keep me grounded, something that I use for therapy. Uh, If I have a particularly shitty day or a bad week, that's a great time to fire up the metronome and start practicing like a madman. Um, It's a great way to express feelings, anger, you know, usually is like my favorite one to, to try to bring out. Like I'm not much of a, I'm a ballad writer or a love song writer or any of that stuff. Uh, you know, um, even if I'm not pissed off at something, I can usually find something to, to, to make me pissed off to, sure. to write something kind of 
aggressive. Never have I ever thought, fuck it, I don't want to play. There's been many times where I've thought, fuck it, I don't want nothing to do with the music business and I don't want to be in bands and I don't want to deal with other musicians. But I've never thought, you know, that I would ever quit playing. And uh, at this point, I don't think I ever will. Like, I mean, probably until I, you know, end up with a terrible disease or something that, that makes it impossible to play, I don't think I'll ever stop. Well said. All right. So, I mean, you know, we, we've been pretty serious, you know, right now. So, you know, let's, let's have a little bit of fun. Um, how many, how many guitars do you think you own right now? Um, I, I like how you said, do you think you own? Is that how it is from most musicians? Like you get so many and you just fucking lose track. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've heard I, that. I and my friend Alex, I mean, our friend Alex, the mm -hmm. supporter of the podcast. And, you know, I think at one point he, he said two, three, four. I don't know. Every yeah. time he buys one, it's his true. wife gets pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I had a ridiculous amount at one point, probably close to 30. Um, and uh, that was maddening and uh, completely pointless and really stupid. And, uh, you know, I ended up uh, trading most of them off or selling them to uh, made a decision that I really just wanted some nice high-end guitars. So I have two really nice uh, USA-made high-end Jackson soloists, and I have two really nice uh, Ernie Ball uh, Petrucci model Music Man, uh, you know, the USA model. So uh, they all pretty steep in price and uh you know the expense of selling off a collection of close to 30 to, to acquire them mm -hmm. uh, but those are my pride and joy and my main ones and i have a couple you know wall hanger guitars like uh, i have a hr giger ibanez iceman um which is pretty fly but you know it doesn't really play great it's kind of heavy and awkward with the weird iceman shape uh, that's a cool wall hanger and i have uh, an esp vincent price because uh, i'm a huge vincent price fan and uh yeah that guitar plays you know it's like a, the neck is like a baseball bat um doesn't really play well doesn't have a great sound but it looks cooler than shit so has a great <laughs> that's, wall all that, that's all that matters and uh probably the, the the one of the prizes of the collection that i can't even play because it's in a uh you know airtight sealed uh framed uh back at the old ac Moore when they had a custom framing shop i had this guitar framed i have a Fender Mexican Stratocaster. Uh, I shouldn't say I have it. My wife has it. I've kind of inherited it. But it's my wife's guitar, but it's actually signed by all four original members of Alice in Chains. Oh, wow. shit. So I have that hanging on my wall. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cool now because, you know, Lane and uh, I think uh, Mike Starr, the original bass player, both passed away and mm -hmm. uh, their autographs on it. And uh, I think she won it. It was like a radio promotion or something. And, uh, I'm assuming they signed it. Like we didn't see it and you didn't get a certificate of authenticity. So it could have been some schmuck at a radio station, just hand signing. Yeah, it. that is true. Yes. I mean, here's yep. a little Alice in Chains pun. It looks as net. It's like, so the guitar technically became the man in the box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> and, uh, so we, we had that sealed and, uh, yeah, I know it's like, cause everyone says, how do you know it's airtight? It's like, because I have it in a basement where my studio is. And if you think you can keep strings on a guitar in the basement for 10 years and not see any oxidation or rust, you know, it's airtight. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. So this has been hanging for probably 12, 13 years now. So which is your favorite uh, guitar to record with? Um, probably either my uh, 
my purple or red music man um, because the versatility of the Petrucci model guitar is outstanding. And prior to getting that guitar, I was, I was, if you'd asked me that question two or three years ago, I'd have told you, you know, signature series guitars are for suckers and nobody will ever buy a C who, who wants somebody else's preferred guitar. But uh, on a recommendation of a friend I went to, to, you know, musicians Institute with, I tried one at a guitar center and was floored. I was like, Oh my God, this thing is like cutting, but like, having a hot knife and cutting butter. Like mm-hmm. it just, Jesus Christ, this thing plays almost by itself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it just, it's got so much diversity and sound and which makes sense because even though I'm not a fan of dream theater, like I, I think John Petrucci is an amazing guitarist. Absolutely. Their music makes me want to put an ice pick through my head. Because I just, I just not really into prog metal too much. I find it to be kind of annoying. I'd rather spend um, 20 minutes doing something else than listening to a song. But their musicianship is is outstanding. Like like all those guys are just such great players. And and he has such a wide assortment of of sound, um, from from you know, typical metal to, you know, jazzy, funk, bluesy. So the guitar is like so damn versatile and it just it sounds amazing. So that's what I pretty much record everything with these days. All right. Prior to that, a stock Les Paul through a pod, uh, line six pod. All right. So I guess we'll wrap up, you know, this this uh, section of fun questions. You know, you mentioned horror. You're a big fan of horror. You mentioned Vincent Price, you know, all the all the old monsters, you know. But who are some of your favorites from that genre? I've uh, probably always been a fan of the Wolfman. <laughs> um, I always thought the Wolfman was cool because, you know, he only really had to be a monster like one day out of the month and then the rest of the month he pretty much could chill out and do whatever he wants. True. I had uh, eternal life because, uh, you know, he's a Wolfman. So, mm-hmm. you know, with a silver bullet, he pretty much keeps going. And, you know, if there was somebody he didn't like, I, I suppose you could probably plan to be around that person on the full moon and take care of business without uh, any memory of it. So I always thought the Wolfman was kind of a cool character and, uh, Big fan as a kid, huge fan of uh, Frankenstein, Boris Karloff, Frankenstein, phenomenal movie, great actor, uh, great image, you know, iconic, you know, it stood the test of time, people still, um, but I, I truthfully, I love them all, like, you know, I, I can go on and on, like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Mummy, Christopher Lee, was brilliant. Christopher Lee? Christopher Lee, oh, yeah, he's one of my favorites. I mean, I have the entire Hammer collection on my Plex server, so uh, I've seen every one of Christopher Lee's Draculas, including uh, his Count Dracula, which he tried to do uh, more authentic to the Brown Stoker one. So he actually starts that off as an aged-looking Dracula that progressively gets younger as he goes on, and uh, brilliant. Awesome. Even, even the Dame Curtis Dracula with uh, Jack Pallas. Yeah. So one of my all-time favorites. Love that movie. Hail Satan! Guess what? The fun is over. Now we're going to get to the downright evil stuff. Oh, no! (laughs) We're going to take a look at some of these satanic songs hail satan oh yes hail 
Satan. Indeed. 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 Dennis didn't say it. He's an asshole. Indeed. Too late now. (laughs) Too late. Anyway, um, so as you may have noticed by listening to our little jingle that we play, uh, we're going to talk about music right now. And uh, we're going to talk about a band that's very important to me, a band that I really loved. I still love them. I still listen to their music. John Rustin was the lead guitarist of this band. And of course, the band that I'm talking about is none other than Carfax Abbey. And we are actually going to listen to a little bit of Carfax Abbey while we ask John these questions. Are you all right with that, John? Absolutely. All right. So, I mean, I guess we'll start off with the basics. I mean, for our listeners who are not familiar with the Philly music scene, I mean, how would you describe Carfax Abbey? You know, how would you describe the impact that you had on the city for over 20 years? Uh, um, how you describe your original band? Um, I don't know. It, it, well, I guess that's probably not the best way to start off. I don't know. But <laughs> we were, uh, I don't know what to call what we were doing precisely. Like We had so many influences that were going into what we played. Like, you know, we were into metal. A lot of us came from playing a variety of different metal bands on the scene at the time. Um, we were into dance music, what DJs were doing. Uh, that was uh, becoming a, a quick new medium. And, and we were also influenced by a lot of the, you know, up and coming bands that were being classified as industrial or gothic. So, you know, our influences ran pretty deep in the scene from, from Gary Newman, uh, you know, and Cars way back in the 80s and, and his, you know, releases that a lot of people ignored from the 80s on up. We were pretty big fans and, uh, you know, of course, you know, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, you know, White Zombie, not the Rob Zombie solo stuff, kids, but White right. Zombie. Right. Yes. Um, you know, Sister Machine Gun, uh, Switchblade Symphony, uh, you know, all that, that stuff is what we were, Bauhaus, uh, The Cure. I mean, we were into all that stuff. And, you know, we when we started, you know, we actually formed in the late 90s and, uh you know, grunge had pretty much run its course in Philly. Um, but I think Philly was really, really populated at the time with a lot of bands like, I, I guess you'd call them the shoegazer bands. Like, you know, dudes that just stood there and, you know, kind of stared at their shoes and either played, you know, deep, thoughtful stuff um, or extreme metal dudes that, you know, uh, would go up there and you know, blast out some great shit. But they weren't really bringing in a lot of diversity in an audience and sure gary and i the singer for carfax you know we had played for briefly maybe six months together in a cover band um in between our original bands really weren't doing too hot on the scene and that's how i met gary we played in a cover band together we uh we were playing dance music you know and and all of a sudden we were exposed to brand new rooms that we weren't able to play as original acts and and i discovered something really interesting at that time like god it's amazing to see like nice looking girls up front dancing to your stuff and not just dudes beating the shit out of one another absolutely i I minded the dudes i mean i i I loved everyone that came out to support the band but i thought god it would be so cool if we could find a way to get both audiences at the same time so how do we write songs that are heavy enough that metal dudes are cool liking it but danceable enough that their girlfriends will actually come out on the dance floor and dance sure and 
that was the uh, what we wrote down as a game plan when we got together as, as a band. You know, we, we formed out of, uh, you know, the original band was uh, Gary, uh, Paul, myself, Byron, and Dave. And uh, Paul, Gary, and Byron were together in a, a band called Creekside. Kind of like Bon Jovi rock, if you can believe that. And uh, I was playing in a band called Mr. Bones, which was probably like a Alice in Chains light type band. Um, probably overplayed on every guitar solo and just hot dogged. And when we formed Carfax, you know, the idea was that we really wanted to do something that, that was better than us. You know, it wasn't about like how good of a guitar player could I be or how great of a singer could Gary be. And, you know, it was like, for once, let's just have a band that people like because they, they dig the band and not individual members of the band. And uh, we thought to accomplish that, the easiest way to do it would be to just rehearse so much. And again, kind of going back to my early, you know, uh, fundamentals as a player was just like repetition and practice. Like it's not the days you put in, it's the hours you put in. So, you know, Absolutely. we practice obsessively crazy, you know, three, four nights a week, you know, four or five hours. We, uh, you know, and we rehearsed kind of like we played shows like we we run you know we were developing our light show and we'd have fog going and we we every rehearsal was like a gig and you know i think an important thing that we did early on was even though the core writers of the band were, were david you know the keyboardist myself and, and gary we we were the the primary writer the other guys contributed here and there but the three of us were the main you know i'd say writers of, of most of the material um, but we, we would work everything out live in a band setting. So all the other guys would, would contribute. So, you know, and, you know, little things like, you know, putting the right symbol hit in the right area can make or break a song and, you know, when to, when to shut up and get heavy and, and all those, those key things kind of develop in that. And, uh, that's how we started and playing Philly. We were a suburb band. So, you know, getting into Philly wasn't easy back in the in the late 90s early 2000s like you know our our attempt to get into philly was every door was slammed in our face over and over and over again like we couldn't get philadelphia to spit on us we couldn't get the goth scene in philly to pay attention to us we couldn't get the metal clubs in philly to give us a break nobody so we we kind of went underground disappeared for about a year and a half and just worked our shit out to to practice and get good and started playing shows in seaford delaware Wow. Um, Coyotes? Well, we went down, we played a place called CC22, and and we did it for two reasons. A, they were the only place that would book us, so that was the number one big reason. Of course. Uh, And and, and the other thing was, we figured if we sucked, we were far enough away from Philly that we wouldn't have to change our name again. Absolutely. It took like six months to find a band name that we liked. So we figured if we went down and played in Delaware and we were terrible, you know, it would be fine because we wouldn't have to change the name when we started playing Philly. And... I think around that time when we came out, knowing the way Philly was, like we had a cassette tape that we had recorded on our own. And uh, like everything else in those early days, we did everything ourselves, uh, 100%. So we uh, we had, uh, I borrowed an ADAT from, from, I was working at Ibanez at the time, and we had an 8-track ADAT. Wow. We borrowed that to the Bay studio. Bay was, uh, you know, a freaking madman working with Digital Performer on an old-ass Mac. And... We sequenced the entire album, 
So we use MIDI drums and MIDI keys and sequence the entire album and then record it live, the bass guitars and Gary Singh. Dave worked at Disc Makers, so he was able to to get a that's a good deal. And we got like a couple hundred produced. And uh when we uh, went down to Delaware, you know, we we hand a few of them out. So the promoter brought us back down about a month and a half later, and and an interesting thing happened. About the 10 cassettes we handed out, like everyone started copying them and you know, we the next time we went down the first time we played, there was like maybe 20 people in the room. We went back down there the second time. There was probably 200 people crammed into place. Found out the DJ down there on a local radio station was playing the cassette. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, like we were freaking huge. Like we were headlining and you know, we barely had enough songs to play a set, let alone be headliners. Right. And uh, happens fucking fast. Doesn't yeah, it? it does. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, like, shit, we got to write more songs. Yeah, and and you know that's when we actually started doing covers a little bit. Like we didn't want to do you know like typical covers, so we covered Magic Man from Heart. We covered Run Like Hell from Pink Floyd, and everything we Carfaxed. So it didn't sound anything like you know what those artists did. Um, we covered uh, Relax from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Um, and you know, I guess we hit pay dirt, uh, when we did cry little sister from the lost boys. Which listening to right now. Cry you little know. sister. I did my research. I nerded out a little bit. This is, this is definitely yeah. one of my favorite songs off the album. Yes. The local trivia on that song is uh, the girl singing the backups is the sister of the rhythm guitar player for Heaven's Edge. Oh, wow. So Kiki Parry, her name is. So her brother Steve Parry was the uh, you know, the second guitarist in Heaven's Edge, the guy that was more bluesy. And uh, so we thought we were kind of cool that we had some Philly royalty uh, singing backups on that song. Yeah, um, absolutely. Fucking bragging rights, that's right. Yeah, exa- absolutely. Yeah. She's a great singer too. She I forget the name of the band she used to flunk, but uh she was she was pretty pretty outstanding, really good musician. And Philly was hard because you know, anyone who did was gigging in Philly back then, there were a lot of good bands on the scene. And, you know, and, and we were a, kind of a pain in the ass, you know, because we, we wanted to bring in our light show, we wanted to bring in our event, and, and we had one goal. When we played, whether you liked us or didn't like us. You certainly weren't going to forget us. Absolutely. I can contest to that. And the deal was to do that, you had to transform the club because most of the clubs, you know, kind of had a sports theme and, you know, we weren't sports guys. Um, so we were like, we want the club to look like those, those clubs you see in like Blade and you see in, uh, you know, The Matrix and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with Philly, you know, they weren't clubs that were really booking bands, but that's what we wanted to be playing at. So we figured... Well, black lights, some some cool, you know, the shitty Radio Shack, or running this the Sam Ash Guitar Center, or buying some some goofy ass little. And then we were lucky enough to have a lot of friends that, that helped us in those early days, and they ran the lights for us. Oftentimes with relay switches because we didn't have a real light board, so right. a lot of off buttons to get the lights on and fog machines and. Don't forget you know, about don't forget about the uh, the kick ass samples too that you guys used to play while you were playing. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing with that is, you know, what we tried to do is is eyeballing what other bands were doing and then just trying to be smart about what works and what doesn't work. 
And I don't know how many times I've seen shows where, you know, band band comes out, they have a great intro, they play the first two or three songs consecutively, you know, and then you, you know, we get to that, you know, part where singers like, all right, how's everyone doing tonight? Yeah. Oh, we got some uh, fucking merch in the back and, uh, you know, don't forget to tip your waitresses and bartenders are all working. You know, I mean, it's like everyone hears that. So, and I just thought, Gary doesn't like doing that, that rap. We're not very good at it. He's not that kind of a sales guy because, you know, we tried to do the show and really be in a zone, like be in a mindset of putting on that kind of a show. So early on, we said, no breaks. When we play from the minute they say go to the minute we're done, no stops, no breaks. We're going to play straight through. We're not saying shit to anyone. No, we're not talking to anybody. We're just playing the show. We're going to let the samples do the little in-between stuff so you can grab a drink of water or whatever you need to tune up or whatever has to happen. Absolutely. Um, so that was also challenging because you're going into Philly playing playing shows with, you know, sound guys that, you know, were kind of accustomed to straight-ahead rock and roll bands, you know. You're coming in there saying, well, I need you know, a couple direct lines for keyboards. We need DAT machines hooked up. We need, you know, extra outlets for lights. And you guys are, who are these fucking clowns? We're not, we're not dealing with these guys. And, right. You know, but I think a couple of things that really helped us was we honed our craft a lot in the burbs. There was a lot of suburban clubs that were very, very cool to us in the beginning and, and started giving us some shows. And, we did, knowing that any Philly room we would even get an offer to play, we'd have to play the shit spot, which would either be first or last. So when the promoter would say, do you want first or last? I said, we'll take the last spot. And then what we did, we started advertising. Hey, man, it's the fucking witching hour. You know, we're Carfax fucking Abbey. Exactly. We don't play anywhere but last. Yeah. Nobody can follow us. So we're not playing anywhere but last. Nobody wants to follow us. So we're not going to play any spot but the last spot. And, uh, you know, it was probably writing a big check at the time. But, you know, luckily, luckily enough, uh, I was surrounded by guys that could back it up. And, sure. Uh, you know, and that's, that's really how it started. And, you know, our first good Philly gig... A uh, guy named John Rambo, um, rest his soul, he passed away a number of years ago, but John Rambo used to run a place called uh, Yolanda's Dark Corner, and uh, he did an event at the old Asylum Club, and he was the first guy in Philly that gave us a gig. Nice. I th- I've been there quite, you know, I was there quite a few times over the years, Yolanda's. Yeah. Yeah, that was like one of my favorite places to play. It was a real shithole, but man, it was tons of fun to play there. Yes, it was. It's fun to watch shows there, too. Yeah. All right, so, I mean... Well, I don't even know if I answered your question. I probably rambled like an idiot. I think you answered time. like 10 of them. <laughs> I, I'm serious. <laughs> I really think he did. That's right. It just requires a little focus. You got this. Yeah. You've carved, you know, a niche in the gothic industrial scene in Philadelphia. You know, the band's playing shows left and right. You know, people are starting to notice the name of Carfax Abbey. You know, is is this humbling for you, you know, to look back, you know, at that time in your life to know that, you know, this was actually something special? Because I know it was really special to me as a fan. 
you know, I always appreciated it uh, all the time. Whenever people would say something nice about the band or, or give a positive compliment, um, you know, because I spent so many years playing in bands that couldn't get people's attention, uh, couldn't get an audience. So when we finally had an audience, um, it, it really meant something. And, you know, I think a lot of it was, you know, being fortunate enough to, to be with the guys that I was with when it started, because, you know, we loved playing those songs so much that, you know, it, it didn't matter if it was 10 people or 100 people. You know, we just, we used to practice like that. So a lot of the shit that you'd see us do on stage, minus the body paint, that was how we rehearsed. Like, we didn't rehearse just standing there and doing the songs. Like, Gary would break microphones and mic stands at rehearsal. Gary would break all kinds of shit at rehearsal. I don't know how many times, like, you know, he'd smack into a guitar. We, we were in a 10 by 10 room. So have you ever seen that Pantera video for Broken? Where we're all kind of just around in this yeah. circle. Like, around the track. Like, that's, what we, that's what we look like. You know, Dave in one corner, Byron in another corner, Paul in another corner, me in the other corner. Yeah, you're eight in the seven. So depending on where you were standing, like, you know, Byron hit a damn drum cymbal and your, your eardrum would just explode. <laughs> so, and we were loud as shit. Like, I, I mean, we probably rumbled four blocks away. You could hear us. Oh, you but, guys were loud, but I didn't mind it at all. Yeah, we, we you had to feel it. Mm-hmm. So so it, it was always humbling. And I'll tell you, I probably appreciate it more today than even then because, you know, it's it's nice occasionally if I encounter somebody online or, or you know, get into a conversation. Some God, I used to come out and see you guys. And, you know, Hey, it makes me feel really old, but it's me too. Cool that you know people still remember and still like what we did. Mm-hmm. You know, that's can't be anything but humble. Absolutely. All right, so I mean, let's talk about let's talk about the album a little bit. Let's talk about Second Skin. I mean, how did how did that recording process go for you guys? Um, Second Skin was was kind of tough because um, you know when we did American Gothic following the cassette. We did it all on our own. So we, at this point now, made a little bit of money and we bought a 16-track hard disk recorder because, you know, computers and Macs hadn't really gotten to the point where they are today. So we had a, I think it was a Roland 16-track uh, hard disk recorder. Um, and we recorded American Gothic, same place we recorded the cassette, you know, in Dave's basement uh, on our off time. Um that one we put a lot of time in, you know, with samples and designed that album to be a full playthrough, like our show, beginning to end. Like you put American Gothic on a place from the front to back, no breaks. By the time we got to doing Second Skin, you know, we had attracted the attention of, of a magnificently brilliant uh, producer in Philly, a guy named Scott Stallone. And Scott's actually done shit for Toyota and he's got Grammys and he's worked with all kinds of hip hop acts. Wow. And Scott's the, Scott's as real deal as you get. And he took a, an interest in the band as well as, you know, two great guys from, from Grave Street, uh, Jim Thorpe and Joe Cahill. Uh, both those guys, you know, were running a thing called GSP productions and they took an interest in what we were doing. And together, you know, we ended up getting a spec deal with Scott to go in and actually record in the, you know, what we were classifying at the time as a real studio. And uh, so like the healing, love, hate kind, spit shot, um, 
and I think ketamine. I think we recorded those all with Scott. And then the rest of the album, um, we recorded in Dave's studio. And it was during Second Skin that things kind of, I don't know, a little... Scott did the healing, too. And uh, things went... By the time we got to doing Second Skin, you know, it was a little tough on David because he pretty much did everything you know on the recording side so now we got a spec deal we've got a real producer and should say real but a different producer right and uh i don't think dave he didn't really like where scott was taking the song scott was definitely giving it a little bit more of a harder rock edge than where dave really wanted to see it go um so dave quit the band and uh started a solo band where it was then white um but I didn't have the chops to finish the album. And, you know, if we were going to continue doing a spec deal with Scott, we would have ended up owing the guy like, you know, a million dollars. So we uh, we reached out to Dave and, and you know, he, he, you know, for a very modest fee, uh, finished the album for us. And, uh, and it was great because he was also kind of very familiar with, obviously very familiar with us and, and everything we were doing. And, you know, the odd thing is the songs of Dave contributed to as a songwriter were songs that Scott did for the most part, other than the healing. And uh, most of the other songs were songs that we wrote posting. So uh, like the healing was uh, pretty much Gary and I and many other tracks on Second Skin, like the title track was written by the drummer. Um, so when you, you know, at the time it was one of the only songs that he had ever composed and wrote. And uh, pretty much the rest of the album was either myself and Gary or David, myself and Gary finished it. How long were you guys actually in the studio for? Probably six months to a year. Every day? No, no. If it was every day, it probably would have been three to six months. Um, Probably twice a week. All right, so I know um, I know Carfax Abbey, you know, opened for Type of Negative at the Trocadero, you know, rest in peace, you know, as well as other big name bands, you know, playing Dracula's Ball and all that, you know, was it more pressure on you guys, you know, playing a show like that as opposed to like, you know, the Pontiac Grill for a bunch of your friends? Um, I actually preferred playing the Pontiac Grill than, than ever opening for one of the bigger acts and, and no disrespect to the bigger acts, but you know, as a local act on those shows, you're never really given the respect you you deserve. Your time slot's always you know messed with. Uh, oftentimes, you're a lot of money out of pocket in advance ticket sales, and you know, um, typo negative was an exception, and MDFMK were exceptions to that rule because we were handpicked by MDFMK to to open for them. Wow, out of a group of, of bands. Um, they were really came at the end, but I think they were in some. They had to use their name backwards at the time. But um, when they came and played the truck, uh, they said, "You know, we want a local to open, so give us like your ten best locals, and uh, we'll pick one." And uh, so we were handpicked by by them to open that show, which was extremely cool and uh, one of the best opening experiences because since they picked us, we actually got to play our full set. Um, Typo Negative was also uh, super nice guys. Like they were just so goddamn down to earth and just so nice. And 
they were they were big fun to play with and, and no rock star ego with them at all like they were just dudes hanging out in the back laughing and joking they, they didn't even keep their dressing room door closed like they would just you know mill around backstage and chat everyone up and they were big fun but most of the other times like i, I just if we were playing the pontiac we were headlining and we were the the band and we knew the audience was there to see us and right part of it's probably just the self-imposed paranoia that when you're the opening band for someone like typo negative you know most of the audience doesn't give a shit about you they they're waiting to see typo so it's like they're counting the seconds like hurry up get your set done <laughs> yeah right I, I i i can honestly say that i i never really I enjoyed the local headlining gig much more so than other openings for a national line. Are you, uh, so, you know, as long, as far as shows go, um, what do you think is your absolute most favorite show that you guys have ever played together? Probably, I would say, probably the first time we played a truck, loud and local event. Uh, for YSB and Mel Toptic was running at the head and uh, he was a huge supporter early on for us and Al Hoffman and uh, when they did their first lab local show truck um, you know Mel Toxic was real adamant about I want Carfax in a prime spot sure huge supporter and uh, that was the first time we played on a really big stage and, and I was surprised at how much room we threw it myself like Usually on oh, you, broke, like, you broke up there. Around. You're breaking up. You're breaking up. You're going to have to repeat what you said. I, I you know, usually uh, the first time we played the truck with Loud and Local was, you know, it was crazy because of how much room you have on stage. And you're just not used to that. Like, you're used to playing these tiny stages and then you're on this big, like, I don't think my cord was long enough, you know, like I was never a fan of wireless. <laughs> I was like, I had this like, 20 foot court which was probably 20 feet too small for what you needed on that stage mm -hmm. so absolutely i remember feeling like very chained to uh an area but uh that one that one and probably the cd release party were my favorites and what about favorites uh favorite songs like is there a favorite carfax abbey song that every time you kind of think back to um you know when you were really like you know not that you weren't the whole time but you know things were at its peak you were 120 percent all in is there a certain song that always sticks out as far as memories or just favorite in general uh the one you're listening to right now academy probably for this part <laughs> now the guitar solo of course perfect yeah. fucking timing let's let's listen to it let's yeah. listen to the guitar solo Fucking shredded that thing. God damn. That couldn't have fucking worked out more perfect. I that know. was the timing was <laughs> impeccable on that one. Whew. That was and, a hell of a guitar solo. Yeah, I'll tell you what with thank you. Um you know, it's it's funny because you know, with Carfax, I remember when we started the band, you know, my prior band of 
tons of guitar solos and really into hot dog playing. And uh, I told Gary when we started Carfax, I'm like, I don't want to do any guitar solos. And he's like, do guitar solos. I'm like, I don't want to do any guitar solos on anything because uh, it's pop out to not write a better song for a guitar solo in. Only, only other guitar players really give a shit about the guitar solo. So I want our songs to be better that they don't need it. And when we were working out ketamine, it was another one that the original, the, the very big intro, um, I came up with uh, that most of the notes. Um, you know, when I was actually, I was, I was traveling for, for work and I, I remember being in a hotel room and I had just bought this uh, little synthesizer type thing that I can hook up to my guitar and, do like some bullshit little synth things and uh they had one patch that had a sitar sound and that's how i so i started putzing around and came up with the idea and i took that to dave and uh david you know kind of helped me flesh out you know where we were going to go with it and then we took it into the rehearsal worked out the song and uh we got to that part where it builds and it's where dave's saying like dude you should do a solo here i didn't know and you guys like, played yeah, kiss this, this song feels like it should <laughs> be a solo that sounds like yeah, Kiss. Man. Oh yeah, I, I put I put some I put some Kiss on. Um, I figured it was it was a perfect way to uh, go post album, especially in, in in spirit of what you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, so you, you know, you guys have any other questions that you want to ask? Um, no, this has been fucking great. Like, and I, I, you know, we've done like Johnny said before, we've done these personal journeys. Uh, in regards to, you know, we're satanic study hall. So we ask about people's journey to Satanism, maybe not Satanism, their experience, uh, you know, through religion. But uh, this, this is our first musical journey episode. And this has been fucking great. Like, yes, it has. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're about an hour and a half in and this is, I, I want to keep going. <laughs> this, awesome. is, this has been fantastic. I mean, from other, I think we hit all the questions. I mean, Johnny, yep. Johnny covered a lot. Um, I know we're yeah. kind of, we're kind of at the point where uh, we can kind of start wrapping things up, but uh, nah, I just, this, this has been great. I can't, I can't, it went perfectly. All right, so I mean, I want to give John the opportunity to, um, you know, to plug, you know, other projects that he's been involved in since, you know, Carfax, Abbey's disbandment. You know, how do you stay busy? Um, well, I'm working with uh, two different bands uh, these days. I do uh, mostly home studio work, three bands technically. I play in a top 40 band, a cover band in my local town, and uh, just for fun. I think we play like one show every other year, but. That band's called uh, Modern Day Gray. And, uh, but cool, you know, other cool stuff, original stuff. Um, I play in a pseudo, uh, I would say an electronic, gothy, industrial style band uh, called Bow Ever Down. Um, really? I work with, uh, yes, I, I joined up with Kim uh, with Bow Ever Down uh, a few months back. And uh, we've been writing and recording uh, the next album for Bow Ever Down, which awesome. uh, is going unbelievably amazing she's so brilliant to work with and uh got so many great ideas and you know for me it's it's an awesome opportunity to kind of get to to go back to what i really loved you know that fusion of electronic uh dance kind of heavy it's probably not as heavy as the stuff we've done in the past with carfax um the kid is pretty fearless, so I have I have no doubt we'll we'll do that. But you know, she's also a different kind of writer. And right. Down Down was a band that Carfax played uh, lots and lots of shows with, uh, you know, and they were always a local favorite of mine. Like they uh, they were on a personal note, 
one of the bands that I always look forward to playing shows with because, you know, I just dug their shit and I thought they were great. And uh, I actually and, saw you guys at the Rotunda. Yeah, it I remember was, that. It was, it was you, Bauer Carfax Down. Abbey, and uh, it was Carfax Abbey, Bowver Down, and I believe the Drowning, Drowning Season, yeah. I believe it was. Yeah. Those guys were yeah. good too. Just straight up and, gothic uh, rock. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, you know, Kim, you know, she went through some, uh, you know, crazy stuff, you know, musically. And, you know, I got to a point where she probably said, you know, fuck it for a while and didn't do anything. And then, you know, like, like all good musicians, it ends up sucking you back in. And mm-hmm. thankfully she started writing again and put an album out called lost in the woods last year. And, uh, so we've been chatting back and forth on Facebook for quite a while. And when she said, you know, I'm doing my new album, you know, I hit her up and said, Hey, do you, do you need any guitar work on it? So because she was a, a fan of, of Carfax, you know, she uh, said, yeah, I'd love to have you play on this track. So when I got it, I thought I can't resist the urge to actually do a remix of it also. So Absolutely. I got her note and said, Hey, do you mind if I, and she said, no, no, go right ahead. So, I did a remix. I sent it over to her. Um, I must have done pretty good with it because she really uh, liked it enough that we started at that point then working. And she asked if I was interested in joining, and I did. And uh, so here we are. So we got an album coming out in June of this year, um, and that's called Let It Burn. And uh, that'll be probably coming out in all the typical social streaming stuff that you can get to with it. But uh I think uh, the Facebook page is Down official. So if anyone wants to go and hook up there. And then I started collaborating at the beginning of the pandemic with a, a, a very good, a dear friend, uh, uh, Mark, uh, who used to play in a local Philly band called Soul Shock. And then he was a singer for a single bullet theory for a while. And, uh, you know, Mark is a brilliant singer and brilliant songwriter. And, and we have a band, uh, he lives in Japan, so we are a very long distance collaboration team. Um, but Mark is a brilliant writer, a great lyricist, uh, and uh, you know, fantastic person to work with. And uh, we've probably got ten or eleven tracks finished now, and it's a concept album uh, called Prayer. Uh, not to be confused with anything religious related. Right. It's not really necessarily a religious title. It's uh, Mark is, is very spiritual and he's a, he's a uh, very into yoga and a lot of, you know, practices. So, but, but it's uh, the album's called prayer and it's going to be a concept album related to our experiences in the pandemic, you know, not necessarily, you know, the typical like life sucks that we're in a pandemic, um, but kind of the good and the bad, you know, I mean, the pandemic, largely sucks but some good things that have come out of it uh, from my perspective is i work from home right now and it's given me a lot of time to work in the studio and work on music so <laughs> there is sure. a, a silver lining so uh that album uh, that band is called uh mori metanoia and uh we'll have a facebook page and all that crap launched uh, very soon um but we don't plan on I think we're, we're, we're shooting for early 2022 to, to have that finished and put out, you know, uh, you know, Mark is a very meticulous uh, musician and artist. So uh, where I focus mostly on the recording and making sure that the songs are tight and the recording quality is as good as we can get it. You know, Mark handles pretty much everything else as far as the promotion and kind of creating the image and how we're going to market it and promote it. So kind of exciting. Um, and then, uh, you know, my buddy, uh, you know, uh, edit a race. Uh, I did a 
cut a guitar track for those guys on their new album. Um, and then, uh, you know, a band called Lust for Nothing, good friend of mine, Mike, it's a goth band in Philly. And, uh, you know, I did a couple, couple little pieces for them. So we get a lot of session work, uh, which is cool. You were also in the metal band Infernal Opera for a while, right? The the local yeah. metal, the local metal yeah. band around here. Yeah, Infernal Opera, you know, uh, tons of fun. You know, again, great people, fantastic musicians. I got to jam with Mike, and you know, Mike's such a great guitar player. It's like, it's it's stupid how good he is. Um, don't so kiss his really ass. We, uh, don't he's, kiss he's, his ass. He's, he's brilliantly good. He's he's a great player. Not really. He's talking about <laughs> he's talking about the guitars from Siberia. If you're <laughs> um. But, you know, and, and they're all just great musicians. Like, you know, Mike's a great drummer and, you know, Volpe's a great singer. Uh, timing just didn't work out. You know, I, I joined the band right after I joined the band. The bass player quit. Fucking we bass really players. Only, <laughs> bass players. We were really only able to uh, probably get together maybe once a week, you know, for like two, three hours on a Saturday. And it's really kind of hard to to make progress. And it's just, you know, schedules weren't aligning. And, 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 you know, on a personal level, you know, uh, I had, like I mentioned, you know, I, I, had, I started a new career. I, I you know, was at a, a company for about 20 years and uh, they went under. So I was, you know, losing my job all the time that this was starting and uh, was lucky enough to land on my feet, got a new job. And then, you know, when all that was going on, it was just in a time, you know, it wasn't fair. And, and I, I liked those guys too much as people to, to give them half ass. Absolutely. You know, the one thing I promised I would never do, I uh, promised myself I would never do that. If I can't be 100% committed, then I'm not going to be committed at all. I just don't want to be involved. And at that point, I just let them know, like, I just I can't. I don't have the time. You know, it's one thing interesting and important that I learned about myself, even in that whole period. I like doing my own shit. I like being a writer and I like writing songs and being involved in the writing process. And, you know, one of the things that I experienced, like I played with single bullet theory and cypher, you know, and Matt DeFabio's bands and, you know, Matt's a brilliant musician, a fantastic friend. And, but he does everything and he writes everything. And it's like, if you're going to play in his band, you have to do it the way he wants it done. And, and I respect that and admire the hell out of it because it's a lot of effort to be able to run a show like that. But I am way too used to being able to do what I want, you know, and the, the freedom I had in Carfax to write what I wanted and play how I wanted and do what I wanted. You can't go back from that. You know, it's like you, once you experience that kind of outlet, you, you just can't put it back in a box and say like, okay, well then somebody else will write the songs and I'm just going to play the parts that you tell me to play and how you tell me to play it. And mm -hmm. what you tell play on and that was even a little bit of the case with infernal opera that you know i was starting to write again and you know but you know they got their style you know i mean mike is the the guy that you know mike a you know he pretty much you know it's it's his you know and there's a good synergy between you know mike c and mike a that you know mike a comes up with an idea mike c can turn it into a cool song mm -hmm. i didn't quite have that same synergy able to to do that so i just thought you know what i'm just not even gonna waste these people's time easier to go on my own yeah i need to do that with siberia <laughs> stop wasting time well i mean i just want to say for myself you know i'm not going to speak for dennis and bill but this has been an amazing experience for me and the, the question that i really want to end this interview with with you john is you know what do you take away from this whole experience of being a musician you know and being a guitar player 
Um, seriously, the greatest, the greatest thing in my life, you know, it's, uh, it led to all the good stuff that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, I met my wife because I was a guitar player, you know, she came to a Carfax show and that's how I met her and been with my wife for 20 years. And, uh, you know, uh, so that, that was brilliant. And, you know, uh, getting my dog, Dr. Watson, uh, was also brilliant, but, uh, the biggest takeaway from being a musician is I, I just don't seriously know what I would ever have done with myself. Um, had I not been, it's, it's really the only thing that, that has mattered to me, um, is a never ending quest to be as good as I can be at it and to continue pushing to be good. You know, I don't have any desires to go out necessarily and play live shows as much as I used to. And, you know, don't really care about accolades of people saying that they think it's great or that they hate it. Um, if they like it, awesome. If they don't, uh, that's cool too. Um, but for my own personal musical journey, uh, you know, it's just what I love about the guitar is it's the ultimate video game. Like you'll never beat it. You just will never, you can't master it. It's a, it's an untamable beast. I mean, you can control it and you can make it do things you want, but you know, like any wild animal, you just, you'll never truly own it. You know, there's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be somebody doing something that you wish you could do or did. And, uh, so I find appealing about it. It's just like some people are into gaming and, and I do enjoy gaming. Uh, Doom was, was awesome. Um, but I'm really old. So like I go back to Doom and Quake being really cool. And I don't know, like I played Fortnite for like an hour and said, I can't keep up with these kids. Oh my so God. I'm the fucking builds on that game. Holy <laughs> shit. That's where I got turned no, off. I was like, I'm getting dizzy, so I got to get the hell out of here. Yep. <laughs> I, I t- truly thought every one of these kids playing this game were like, hey, old man, get out of here. Right. Um, exactly. That's exactly what they were doing. <laughs> totally. And uh, so so that's where the guitar is always just stuck in. Like, I just, no matter how much I practice, I always think I can be better. Or and no matter what I record, I always think, I mean, just when you played some of the Carfax stuff, I was just like, God, I should have done that better. God, I should have done that different. So it's just. But that's the beauty of it. So it's, I wish more people could could play and, and understand um, just how wonderful it is to actually be able to, to have that, you know, as part of your life. So I think I'd be pretty lost without it. That or I'd become a serial killer one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah without, 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 or that horror collection, without the, without the music, I could totally see that. All right. So, I mean, we're going to wrap things up. I mean, do you guys have anything you'd like to say? Dennis, you've been quiet the whole time. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've just been kind of taking everything, and you were you were really good on that. Um, and I've just been enjoying everything he's been saying. Um, but thank you very much for coming, man. It's pretty cool to meet somebody else that uh, you know knows Musicians Institute and all the crazy <laughs> shit that happens over there. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding, man. If you haven't been there, like only people that've been there understand. Like if you yeah. never Hollywood Boulevard. You just don't understand Hollywood Boulevard. Like you literally could spend all night just standing there watching people. Oh my, it's ridiculous. I used to stay over off Beverly in um, West Hollywood. So okay, all of that. It's always over there. So, but no, thank you very much, man. I'll uh, I'll let Johnny wrap this one up. Yeah, awesome. Thank yeah, you. The, yeah, this has been great. Um, and and thank you for 
you know, kind of saying the magic words as you wrap things up uh, as far as the musical journey. And one thing we're going to kind of incorporate into this episode um, as we as we put the finishing touches on it before um, we put it out is, you know, those two words and the musical journey, you know, whether it's, you know, people are Satanists or whatever their flavor is from a religious aspect, that's irrelevant. But um, music is therapy. Music is magic. Music is focus. Music is fucking you know what i mean amazing it's, it's the everything. universal language it really is yeah. and and that itself music like i'm so glad we're doing this musical journey stuff because to me i mean i'm a listener I, i'm an appreciator you know what i mean like it's it's a it's i it is a fucking art and there are so many different kinds of art form when it comes to music and this is something that I think a lot of our listeners will be able to resonate with, um, not only just the work and the craft that's involved in this and the progression, but um, just how how much of an impact, you know, you know, whether it's picking up an instrument or supporting, you know, somebody that's close to you that's picking up an instrument, um, you know, it really makes a, a big difference in people's lives. You, you don't get a better example of how powerful it is. And then actually, you know, my love of movies, you know, really ties in when you think of just Excalibur, brilliant film, you think of the, the piece where they use Carmina Burana, you know, and King Arthur is riding out and the, the world is being refreshed. And, and it's just that such a brilliant piece of music that fits the film or, you know, in any horror movie, like, you know, you take Friday the 13th, you know, the iconic, you know, cha, 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 you know, mm-hmm. uh, this music plays such a, a role. I, I don't, I don't know if people realize how much it plays a role in your daily lives, but it, it truly does. And it's, uh, it's such a wonderful thing. And it's, uh, I'm glad people still appreciate it and recognize it. And, and there's still people pushing the craft of, of doing it. Yeah. So I, I bought a keyboard just so I could learn the Halloween theme. <laughs> Which I did. I did learn it. Fitting. Yes. I can play play the office theme song. He's like master of just doing something simplistic, but it works. Absolutely. Like, like, I always loved his work on Halloween. And if you listen to uh, The Thing, it's also brilliant. And and not just The Thing, but even his work on They Live and the soundtrack to that. It's just, the guy has just got a knack for doing like cool spooky sci-fi that's one of my favorite movies of all time they live i uh, i I watch it probably bi-monthly easily i have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and i'm all out of gum (laughs) fucking roddy piper man such a great movie put the glasses on And the infamous scene where he smashes the coconut over Jimmy Superfly <laughs> snuck his head back in WWF set the tone for like a two year long angle. It was great. Probably the greatest street fight ever. They said not to get off too far off a tangent, but they said Jimmy Snooker was never the same since. It's because it was a real fucking it was a coconut. Real fucking coconut, and he and he had no idea it was coming. It was completely nope. improv. Like they said, he was like you know a little slower after that moment, like forever. I would guess yeah, so. They hurt. That motherfucker murdered his wife, was it right? Yeah. Girlfriend. Yeah, he did. Girlfriend. He did. That's a shame, man. A lot of those guys, you know, uh, like, like, what is his name? Uh, Chris Benoit. You know, I mean, he went freaking Looney Tunes and, you know, Lex Luger's and, you know, like near dead. Just so many of those guys just, you know, they, you know, on one hand, I admire that, that like you push yourself 
I guess it's a it's a worthy question. Is it worth it? I mean, most of them will probably say yeah, because you know what they achieved and what they did. But I don't know how worth it it is to be dead. Right. Um, I'd rather have a couple more years, but you know, it's tough. The guitarist lifespan is a hell of a lot longer than a professional <laughs> wrestler. No <laughs> yeah, right. You're Not looking yet. pretty good on that angle. <laughs> you got some no, years no left. Coconuts, so uh, yeah. All right. So I guess with that, you know, I'm going to say thank you so much, John, for doing this interview for me. You know, like I said, I'm a big fan of Carfax Abbey. I still listen to you guys. I always will listen to you guys. I love you guys. Thank you for having the music for me to, to grow up with and to listen to. You know, it's it's a timeless thing and, you know, I'll never get tired of listening to it. Oh, well, thank, thank you so much. I mean, I really appreciate, you know, you and anyone else that, you know, tunes in that, you know, appreciates what we did, you know, we're just a couple of local guys that, you know, had an idea and, you know, it, it worked for a while and it did some cool things. So I'm just thrilled that people remember and still appreciate it. So. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully this musical journey episode will, um, you know, bring some new ears to, to your work. And, uh, just like Johnny said, and uh, I'm sure based on the passion that I see, you know, I know Johnny's got an ear and I've enjoyed your work so far, but I'm sure there's some listeners out there that, you know, there's a good chance you've got some more people down the road upcoming that might be impacted, you know, by some of the work that you put in back then. So I'm excited. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you guys. I mean, anything, uh, anytime is my, my, extreme honor that you guys uh, took time to do this so thank you maybe we can get you and gary on at the same time and you guys can do a song oh god if you get gary and i on here together like the, the ball busting just will, <laughs> <laughs> will be legendary there we go. Right we can, maybe we can supplement this with a, a patreon we've got a patreon that uh you know some of our hardcore listeners can subscribe to to get behind the scenes bonus episodes so yeah that, that could be something we could do down the road I absolutely can, I a little ball busting mu music stuff all right all right well we got to get out of here because principal pan's gonna probably find us and then we'll probably get to yeah, we're, we're, so in we better, we're in school after hours right now yeah we better get out of here so john thank you so much love carfax abby love you you know thank you thank you you guys uh take care it's been wonderful all right, that was fucking awesome. But before we wrap things up, we do have a little bit of business to handle. Uh, so social media, fuck social media. I'm hating it more and more every day. And yes, I gave that weird little squinty face every day. You did, I saw it. It's annoying. Um, it's, yeah, but. It is super annoying. It really is. I never realized I'm how annoying I'm it is. I'm thankful for, you know, Discord. Me too. You know, even over Facebook, because Facebook amplifies it. But, um, but nonetheless, you can find us on social media, because social media is essential when you're a member of the community like this, and you're doing what we're doing. Uh, so search us at Satanic Study Hall on Facebook. Uh, we also have an interactive Facebook group called Satanic Study Hall Presents the Goat Farm. You can search it just by searching what I just said. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Satanic SH. That's where both the S's and the H are capitalized. It does make a difference. I'm going to find out if it does. I've said that for fucking almost a year and I've never saw, I never tried it. So I'm going to see if it really does right. make a difference. So we're going to put that shit to the fucking test. <laughs> 
Oh, Lyle, you're quiet over there. He's way over in the corner. He's still um, jamming out. He is. He has fucking headphones on. Um, but yeah, so outside of that, we on in, we're on Instagram. Uh, you can f- follow Belial the Baffinet on Instagram and Satanic Study Hall. We suck at social media. I mean, it's not something we ever said that we were good at. Uh, right. We're trying here and there. Um, we uh, are on Discord, obviously. If you would like to check us out and become a member of the Goat Farm community on Discord, you can send us a message and we will happily send you a link. Um and patreon if you want to consider supporting the podcast i think we mentioned it in the beginning maybe we didn't uh but we do have a patreon you can find us at patreon.com slash satanic study hall where we have three different tiers where you can support us three dollars and 33 cents six dollars and 66 cents or twenty dollars a month um all coming with various different um what do I say? Advancing advantages. advantages. Yep. I don't even know what that means, but what that really means is you get different shit um, for shit different tiers. It. Yeah. Um, anything else that we forgot? Um, I don't believe we're so. looking forward to new things from Dark Art Depository and Misty's Coventry. As always, check out their work. They seem to uh, both be pumping out new stuff on the regular. Misty's Coventry, you can search them on eBay, Dark Art Depository. Um, DarkArtDepository.com has the latest um, product line of what they're offering. And um, yeah, and keep an eye out. Satanic Study Hall merch um, is coming. It's the Varsity Collection. We advertise for it on VHQ, and it just looks great. So shout out to Happy Cat. Uh, for supporting us and working with us and being our partner in that venture. Uh, Johnny, what you got? Any thank you, special thanks? Um, anything for our fans or haters? Or Well, I mean, obviously, you know, I want to thank John Rustin III for taking time out of his busy schedule to come and talk to us on this very special episode. I mean, as I said before, this episode really means a lot to me, and I hope that I can do more in the future. Uh, I do have somebody, you know, cooking in the works, another local musician. I don't know uh, if they're going to be able to do it or not. I hope that they are. I want to try to keep this local. I think it's really important that you support local music. And I mean, yes, I'm not just saying that because I'm in a band and, you know, we play locally. I mean, it really is important to support local music because if there's no local music, I mean... Who wants to listen to, who wants to go to a bar and listen to a cover band? I know I don't. I mean, that's why they have jukeboxes. That's just what you get stuck with. It's a human jukebox. That's all it is. And, you know, it's good to go out there and, and actually listen to local original music. It's something that I enjoy. It's something, you know, it's something that from everybody from Carfax Abbey, I mean, to, you know, Dickie Devil and the Deviants, you know, it, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. And I also want to give a shout out to uh, Dennis for popping in on the interview as well. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. Uh, we weren't sure. And Dennis Dennis just kind of popped up on our Zoom interview. It was, it was nice to see him. Yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, no, Johnny, thank you for doing this. This musical journey has been cool, um, beyond cool. I uh, look forward to the next and one. If you know, if you want more, tell us in the comments. Yeah. And anything else you want us to cover? Any more intriguing questions or perspectives to take? Anything like that? Um so thank you, John, for, for participating and stopping by study hall and, and, and just for the awesome chat and insight. That was good shit. Thank you, Johnny, for all the hard work and how serious you took this, this journey. Um, it only, you know, it gets me more excited about the next one. Yeah. And I think, um, I think we might even, we might even go out on another song. Uh Oh, oh, there we go. Okay. Dude, what the fuck? What's wrong? 
the hell's wrong with the bell? What the fuck's wrong with the bell? Johnny. What the fuck is going on here? Where's the music? I don't... Not the bell would stop. Uh, I might be able to play something. I bet you it was fucking Dennis. Fucking dead. There it goes. Okay, well... What the fuck happened? I have no idea. I mean, is class dismissed? It is now, motherfucker! <laughs>